This episode is going to be released on Halloween, so it's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, this is Podcast of the Dead, podcast about all things horror related. I'm Zach Palmer. Sitting next to me is Isaac Wright. Hey, he's playing with a pen. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us from across the void is Chrissy Beetle. I have come flu. I oh, love yay. life. I'm also sick, and Wait. this is a really long episode. Yay. Corn flu. Con flu from being at the con. Con flu. I think he yes. said corn flu. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's where you slowly become an ear of corn. Oh no! Sounds like a Stephen <laughs> the King. The kernels are arriving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how was everybody's week? Eh. eh? I got. I nothing. I. Yeah, it was pretty uneventful. For I me. left my shit job and then uh, I went to con. Yeah. Spent money on a Jotaro. Not love pillow, but it's like a <laughs> it's a Jotaro pillow. It's not for me. It sure. is a fuck sure. pillow, isn't okay. it? No. It's a fuck pillow, isn't it? <laughs> no, because it's like just his head and it's like a heart. It's for Steven. Nice. Uh, my if it's week... just his head, that makes it sound even more like a fuck pillow. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, it's very. Uh, I'm gonna fuck your head. Okay. Uh, my week was okay. It was better than last week. Last week sucked. Um, I am also sick. It's not as obvious, maybe. I don't know. Maybe when I uh, edit this, I'll be like, wow, I sound really sick, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is what we're going to call uh, Frankenstein, the definitive episode. It's going to be everything that we can cover really realistically uh, about Frankenstein. Um, This is how we decided to close out October and how we've decided to uh celebrate halloween and we hope you really like it it's also pretty much our first besides halloween 3 was partially scripted this is going to be our first like (laughs) real huge scripted episode so we hope it goes well um so if everybody's ready let's begin podcast of the dead Many times on this show, we've uttered the phrase, the importance and influence of this insert work here cannot be understated. And we often delve into the reasons and give our just evidence to support that fact. However, we feel like all those other times we said that has been rather trivial, like at least compared to Frankenstein, as it truly is one of the most seminal stories in all horror. While it is by no means the oldest story of horror, nor is it the only one to so profoundly affect the genre, it most certainly is one that we keep revisiting time and time again. So, I my first experience with Frankenstein was actually not the book. Um, and I, I feel like maybe a lot of people, at least in modern times, do not experience the book first. They experience some sort of adaption of it first. Um, my first experience was actually, I was in Gifted and Talented in... Uh, in, in um, 
elementary school and second grade. And the first time I saw Frankenstein was the Universal Frankenstein, the 1931 one. Um, and we saw it in that class. And that was, um, I don't know, it wasn't a huge impact on me because, you know, the Universal one to me is a bit goofy. Uh, but it, and it's also like an adaption of a, of a play and it plays a lot like a play. Um, but I don't know when I later read the book, that was when I really understood like how important the property was. Like when we read the book, we ended up reading a large part of the book in my English class, I believe in uh, high school at some point. But, um, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, I, I, I definitely like the book a lot better is, is the way I would put it, I guess. I feel like if I saw the universal horror or the universal version of Frankenstein when I was a kid, I would shit all over it because of how stupid and old it was. <laughs> and now that I've first seen it, you know, in my 30s, uh, I think it's stupid and old and I'm going to shit all over it. <laughs> so that's how I feel about the movie. <laughs> um, I think my first, uh, my first experience with Frankenstein's monster was uh, my parents did um, Haunted Trails around our house around Halloween and they got like a big 10 foot tall inflatable Frankenstein's monster to put at the like a dead end and that was scary uh otherwise I just know what's in the popular culture up until actually reading it or I just knew what was in popular culture up until now I I was very smart I was a smart ass I was one of the people that knew that the name of the monster wasn't Frankenstein right. but beyond that I really didn't have a grasp of the story at all um, like I said, just more of what everybody knows and what you see in Animaniacs and what you see in, you know, just like Looney Tunes or whatever, because he pops up everywhere. You know what I mean? There's not a single Halloween episode of something. There's not a single, like, look at the horror genre or look at classic movies that doesn't, like, that Frankenstein's monster doesn't pop up somewhere, so. Right. Yeah. My first interaction wasn't actually even the 19th. 31 adaptation. My first interaction was the Bride of Frankenstein. Yay! Oh, okay. Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember where I found it. I think I found it in like my dad's VHS collection somewhere. I watched it. I was like, oh, that's cool. Then I watched Frankenstein. I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> then I read the book and I was like, shit, this is cool. Yeah, the book's a lot better. Yeah, the book's very well. Actually, I, I, thinking back, I think my parents did show me Young Frankenstein when I was a kid. Didn't really care too much. It, it was just a funny movie, you know what I mean? The one Yeah, that, no, I was, I'd seen also Young Frankenstein, I think. Yeah. Between the time that I watched The Bride and Frankenstein, and after watching Frankenstein, it was like, oh, this makes sense now. Yeah, right. <laughs> funny man isn't just funny. Funny <laughs> man is smart funny. Yeah, I will say that they, they did show me Young Frankenstein when I was a kid, but the, the movie that they obsessed over for no real reason was Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, which was really hard to find, and it was also a Gene Wilder film. Just for whatever reason, my dad obsessed over that movie for like years until we were able to find it to rent somewhere. He was like, we found it, we found it, and it's kind of stupid. <laughs> it's not as good as Young Frankenstein, so I was like, well, that was anticlimactic. That's just how dads are. Yeah. They, obsess, they obsess over dumb movies. <laughs> my my dad obsessed over uh, Galaxy Quest for a long time. Oh, oh my god! Shut up. Uh, he's a huge Star Trek fan. That and doesn't he's, mean Galaxy Quest is no, no, good. No, 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 no. I, I know. <laughs> I understand. I'm in the camp that you are, but I'm just telling you what he enjoys. It's like you like the the design of the smiley face, and on that basis, you thought that movie Evolution with David Duchovny was good. 
I think my dad really likes that movie. Oh! And that's because my dad really likes David Duchovny. Y'all's dads are nerds. <laughs> You're a nerd. <laughs> yeah, me and nerd. my dad watched the me and my dad watched X Files in like two months. We watched every oh, yeah. fucking episode in like yeah. two months. Now that's don't that try is, me. No, I I totally agree with X Files yes. being watched in the shortest amount of time possible. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> it, it's interesting, actually. The most as a kid, other than you know having seen the 1931. Uh, adaption. Uh, I actually, the one I watched the most, and I actually watched it like 10 times when I was a kid, was Alvin and the Chipmunks meets Frankenstein. That makes sense. I watched, <laughs> I watched Batmunk a lot. I watched some Batmunk. It's Batman, but Alvin and the Chipmunks. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I don't know why I liked the Alvin and the Chipmunks one so much, but I just like, I thought it was just really fun. And, you know, I, obviously, you know, I had that... Let's just clear the air on this one real quick. Like, yes, it is the monster. Frankenstein is not the monster. It's Frankenstein's monster. Victor Frankenstein's a scientist. Okay, that's the end of the discussion. It, I mean, we're not like huge, you know, uh, I guess assholes about it. That's just like you'll see that as the episode goes on, there's not like the, I don't know why or when that got mixed up. I think it's just because it's the title of the book. Popular yeah. culture. Yeah. I guess, yeah. No, it's because it's the title of the book and because the monster is recognizable. Like, or at least the way that the monster has come to be drawn. Like, green face, bolts coming out of the neck, fucking, like, practically mullet haircut. Like, that is really iconic. And so everyone knows where it's from. And so everyone just says, Frankenstein. And yeah. it comes to just mean him i guess yeah even though yeah I, I to a certain degree unless you know nothing then you know that victor frankenstein is the name of the person who created the monster and he's just the monster right but we stopped giving a shit because it's it's it it's less to say yeah that's frankenstein's true. monster is more of a mouthful than just frankenstein yeah or victor the frankenstein's monster, monster or, or whatever creation. yeah right yeah, maybe it's just that now they're interchangeable just because yes. the stories are so closely related and mm -hmm. mm. it doesn't really matter is basically what I'm saying is that <laughs> we don't care. There's a lot of people that get really up in arms about it, I guess. Uh, we give we, a fuck. Yeah, we don't give a fuck. We don't like, okay, <laughs> okay. whatever you want to call the monster Frankenstein's monster's name is Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's his name now. So, <laughs> um... Before we uh, talk about the story, it's really kind of important to talk about Mary Shelley um, because understanding her life is important to knowing how and why she wrote the book. Um, and let me just say that Mary Shelley was a bad bitch. Uh, she was also <laughs> she like, was really bitch. Yeah, she was also goth as fuck. Like she had a lot of shit going on that was like fucked up her life, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. For, first of all, her mother, Mary uh, Wollstonecraft, Wollstonecraft. Let's yeah, Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft was a feminist writer. Uh, her most famous uh, work was a piece called "A Vindication of the Rights of Woman," uh, which posited that women should receive a formal and proper education because they raised the children, and by which children then, at least in part, learn much from their mothers. Uh, for uh, for 1792, when this was written, this was radical shit. <laughs> this was, like, out there type shit. Uh, Shelley's dad, um, William Godwin, was an anarchist and considered to be one of the earliest modern examples of a proponent of anarchis anarchism, which is also pretty awesome. Um, so she had these, like, radical parents. Yeah. Like, 
real radical parents. And uh, I don't know, her dad was obviously like, like a fixture in her life, like for, you know, pretty much all of his life until he died. Her mom, unfortunately, died uh, when she was a little bit younger. We'll get mm. into that in a second. But um, yeah, she, she died pretty soon after she was born. And she just had these um, really radical parents. And I just don't know, like, what my mindset would be in that day and age, like, with parents that had such extreme ideals compared to everybody else. Where, where did she live in her, her early life? Where did she live with her parents? She lived in England, right? It was I England? Mean, yeah. She, yeah. Oh, she was born in Somerstown, which is... It's London. That's in yeah. London, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's like part of London. It's like in Camden. It's Camden area. And so what was the overall political sentiment at the time in the 1700s, like uh, late 1700s Britain? Like, what does your history teach you? Like, when you're in school, what do they teach you that that period is like? I mean, it was probably largely royalist, right? I would yeah, imagine. Um, yeah. Well, I would say probably a lot like a lot of other European nations at the time they were it was probably a largely a population of royalists who were and there was probably like an aristocracy yeah. uh just like in france or just like in um prussia which was you know german germany before germany um and it you know there was there wasn't a whole lot of anarchists let's put it that yeah, way there sure. were yeah, just we, enough but <laughs> we had two of the george like we had both george the first and george the second on the throne at this point so you're, we're in like the post-Stuart era of the royals, so like we're on the Germans who are roiling us at the time. Oh, okay. uh, they started yes, gotcha. transfer transporting convicts over to like America, and yeah, they started transporting people over to America. Yeah, because obviously 1776 happened. And yeah. I was also curious. I don't know this off the top of my head, and Chrissy, you might. When did women like get the vote? Like, when was the women's suffrage movement? Nineteen hundred and like two. Was like, I mean, that's about. Oh, was like so it's just a little bit. So a little bit before ours. Yeah, a little bit before ours then. Yeah, because yeah, our, ours is really late. But okay, yeah. so yeah, so rights of women are still not widespread at all at this point. No. So, okay. God, no. Yeah. So to have to have an anarchist father and a feminist mother. But they were still also fairly well-to-do, right? They weren't, like, pariahs or anything. Like, they were still, like, maybe not wealthy, but they were well-off. They weren't, like, in poverty. Yeah. Because she was a well-known writer, right? Yeah, she was relatively uh, well-known. I mean, that that piece was obviously, you know, a target for for critics. Yeah, for sure. um, I mean, she was... I, I wouldn't say they were incredibly well off, but they were well off enough to not be considered like lower class. Okay. Let's say, yeah, um, they were. So, they were rich enough, rich enough, just independently wealthy enough to not get shit on by the powers that be. Yes, <laughs> yes. And just hearing about them, I do want to know what kind of punk music they listened to. What was the punk music of the seventeen hundreds? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> I don't know. What was Beethoven cooking up then? Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure just something... really fast chamber music. <laughs> <laughs> Faster! Faster! Like that scene in Walk Hard. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so unfortunately, like I said earlier, uh, Shelley's mother died due to a reproductive infection after Mary's birth in 1797. Uh, Shelley's dad uh, very much kept the memory of, um, of her alive um, and taught 
Mary to keep the memory of her mother close and sacred. Uh, for whatever reason, there seems to be an unsubstantiated f- fact that Shelley lost her virginity on the grave of her mother, um, which she did visit regularly. Queen. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we can neither we can neither confirm or deny this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like just a folk, a folk tale, yeah. really. But I mean, it could. Who knows? Yeah, we can neither <laughs> neither confirm or deny this in any complete capacity. Although it is true that the person who she lost her virginity to and who she will later gain her name from, Percy B. Shelley, met her in the cemetery of her mother many times while they were courting each other. So anything is possible. They totally fucked. They, they totally <laughs> fucked on. Her, her mother's grave uh what we do know is true that is that one mary visited the grave of her mother a lot and two she did actually learn to write by tracing the lettering on her mother's gravestone huh interesting yes again so this is queen yeah <laughs> so um so mary shelley like basically what what we consider you know one of the mothers of gothic horror was goth as fuck yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> she um, and uh, she also kept Percy's heart when he died. That's true. She oh my did. God. Yes. She kept uh, Percy's heart in, like, what, a, a drawer of her desk or something, yeah. right? How would Wasn't you, it? How would, no. How would that stay, like, good? It was, um... I don't know. Because he obviously he was lost at sea, wasn't he? So it had um, calcified. So Weird. it was a big, big, big rock heart. Damn, that's fucking <laughs> yeah. gnarly. Yes, yeah, it's, it's metal. It's fun. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a lot of interesting shit to go through before you become like sixteen. <laughs> My question: How do you learn to write just from like an epithet? You don't get all the letters on just one epithet. Well, I mean, obviously she also probably... Have you not seen British gravestones? Okay, expound upon that. If you go to our old-ass cemeteries, we've our gravestones are fucking huge, and they really fucking dig them in. Do they, re- they really dig them? What do you mean they really dig them in? Like, the engravings. Oh, I thought you meant they, oh, just, yeah, ma- yeah. they just made gigantic monoliths that are like, <laughs> they go down a mile below where the grave and actually is. they have an entire, is. like... <laughs> 17,000 word novel on them. Yes. Uh, or maybe maybe her mother's a gravestone just said a quick brown fox jumped over. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or the alphabet. Like it's just it's just a, a, a elementary school primer on her gravestone. <laughs> yeah, she just uh, wrote a grammar textbook on her gravestone. There you go. That's it. That's the way that uh, it happened. Is the rest of her early life like recorded? Well, or is that most of what's like an early life that's kind of well known? I mean, yeah, there's a, there's some stuff that's recorded. I, I mean, I, I can't, like, I'm only trying to, like, give the surface stuff here because there's just so much okay, to really No, I was just curious. I was just curious about what kind of what else is known about her and her upbringing and stuff like that. Well, that will we'll oh, get to that. she was hated by a stepmom. Really? Yeah, oh, her, oh. yeah, she, so her, her dad remarried, oh. uh, and she didn't. They did not get along. Her stepmother and her did not get along at all. Uh, but she did make great friends with her stepsister, right? Uh, Claire Claremont? Yeah. yeah. So her and yeah. Claire Claremont were really close. Okay. Um, so at least there's that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, she she just did not get along well with her, um, her stepmother. Uh, other than that, I mean, she had uh, a pretty formal education. And, and the way she met Percy, so she was actually sent off. Mm-hmm. To live with another right. anarchist, like one of her, one of her dad's friends, mm-hmm. 
and she mm. like learned a lot of really radical views from from him as well. I can't remember Sweet. what his name is, but yeah, she and and it was during this time that she got sent off uh, there to live with him that she met Percy, who Percy was actually also married at the time, but was unhappy in his marriage. So they kind of like eloped, cool. but we'll get, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. In a but yeah, it's Percy. Yeah. Percy Shelley was a bit of an asshole, but also, I mean. He fucks. He, he fucks. <laughs> he fucked. He fucked her in a graveyard. I mean, Stephen can't compete. Yeah, yeah. it's true. I mean, but have you asked him? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I know where the fucking graveyard is as well. Shit, I've walked past it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you don't know that he's not up for that. Yeah. Have you had this have you conversation? Asked Stephen <laughs> if he was fucking a, gra- a graveyard. <laughs> And especially, it's going to be on a stranger's grave, too, yeah, so oh, you yeah. get to offend a completely different party. Yeah. Shelly's mom was probably down with it. It's just going to be like that scene in Phantasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, so as we stated before, um, Mary Shelley courted her soon-to-be husband, Percy B. Shelley, through a series of nightly rendezvous in the cemetery of her mother. Uh, Mary was just about 17, and Percy almost 22, uh, likely she had initially met him during her stay in Scotland with some dissenting mm. radicals, like I had stated before, uh, a sentence which just sums up her wild life. Uh, uh you know, I was just staying in Scotland with some dissenting radicals. Uh, <laughs> fun fact, Percy also, uh, was already in an unhappy marriage, like I said. Uh, and she was pregnant. <laughs> What? He 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 left his pregnant wife. Yeah, that's right. She, which, oh, no. Yeah, she was pregnant. Per, yeah, Percy was kind of a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, Shelley and Percy, uh, well, Mary it, at this time, Mary and Percy eloped together in 1814 as Mary's father did not approve of them being together uh, for... It was actually like a monetary thing, if I remember correctly. I was about to say, how can an anarchist like kind of disallow anything. Yeah, it was like some no sort rules, of, Dad. It was like some sort of money issue that he had with William that oh. they disagreed on. And I can't and, and that was like that like put a rift between them or some I, something. I'm uh, pretty sure it's because Percy is very frivolous whereas got um William Godwin had a lot of debt. So he was quite for an anarchist he was quite frugal. That's true, yeah. Um so interestingly, they actually eloped to Switzerland via France, which at this time had been worn torn during the era of Napoleon. Uh, this would have been in 1814. This would have been like right before the Hundred Days, like when Napoleon came back. Um, but they ran out of money and they had to turn back. Um, so having at this point been disowned by her father, Mary and Percy lived together with friends and acquaintances as much as they could, kind of the equivalent to couch surfing in the. 1800s uh this was a relatively rough time for both of them and they went back to england you said uh yes they went oh, back okay. to england yes well that sucks mm. yeah i was thinking i mean going through war-torn france would be a good way to like keep people off your tracks i guess yeah but <laughs> yeah it would be easier to lose people yeah um but this is kind of like the period where she started getting more interested in switzerland and geneva and all that sort of stuff and for what reason yeah, well, um, I don't know. I believe it's probably because Geneva was, well, Switzerland is neutral in general. Oh, uh, um, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
I was just curious because I was like, what drives you to go to Switzerland? Well, it's okay. So you don't want to like, go to France. I mean, France is picturesque and all that stuff, but right now it's in a really troubled time. France always seems like it's very politically unhappy. Like, there's never, <laughs> like, a good political period of stability because either it's, like, Holy Roman Empire with, like, all the fucking popes living in France for a while because they suck or whatever it is. <laughs> and I, I don't know. France just always seems to be discontent. In its politics. Right. And, and I mean, up to today, I mean, today there's a lot of, you know, discontent in France. And I think it, I think it might be the revolutionary mindset, possibly, also, but I'm not really entirely sure what it is. But France always seems to kind of be historically in a, in a period of some sort of upheaval. So it would be a hard place to, like, try to start a new relationship. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Percy and Mary were kind of in a poly relationship. That's really? true. Yeah, oh, they wow. were. Uh-huh. They 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 kind of just fucked loads of other people, and they were like, "Yeah, cool, okay." Yeah, yeah, because Mary and per- Percy both believed in like an open love type concept. They were kind of eighteen uh, hundreds hippies in that sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they believed in in open love, and they they had an open relationship, uh, which has been documented a lot, actually. Uh, which I don't know when you first hear it, it kind of sounds like another one of those things. Is like ah. It can't be true, or you know, like why wouldn't it be? Yeah, I, well, I'm just saying. Yeah, exactly. It's mm-hmm. like you know all the other radical things that she'd gone through in her life that just you know it just makes sense that she would have that kind of belief about something something I mean, that's more progressive, I guess. You know, I feel like beliefs about polyamorousness and polygamy and stuff have only kind of like really clamped down during like more modern eras. Like that's I feel like true, yeah. I feel like there was a ton, a lot more of it earlier on than a lot of Western history books want to give credit to. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, I think what really started, you know, saying, hey, we probably shouldn't do this as much is the rise of more prevalent, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. So they just kind of had to flip the script a little bit and try to keep people safer, I guess. That's the only thing I can think of. Because otherwise, I mean, you read about... The ancient, you know, ancient Romans, ancient Greeks, you know, ancient, you know, any ancient civilization, mm-hmm. lots of fucking going on. True. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I feel like I, I read a lot. I, I would have to go back and find the actual historical figures I'm thinking of. But I feel like, you know, you read any any number of historical books or anything and you're just like, oh, yeah. And they were also e- either embroiled in affairs or in an open relationship. You know what I mean? So it's just more commonplace. Right. They were all fucking... um yeah i i don't know it's uh one of those things i i think well so i think switzerland the reason why switzerland uh because you know when battle battle waterloo happened Mm -hmm. which is you know that's the final fall of napoleon right um it was like all these all these world powers came together to basically stop napoleon it was uh, mostly england but it was also i believe prussia and russia uh, came together to kind of stop him. So Switzerland, nice in between. Mm-hmm. It's neutral. It's beautiful. You know, it's it's in the Alps and all that stuff. And it's just like, okay, we can just kind of sit it out here. Um, and, you know, it's kind of this oasis in the middle of this, this big cluster True. of stuff that's happening. That makes sense. Because then yeah. later on in the 1800s, that's when you start getting, you know, the Ottoman Empire starts becoming stronger again. Like the Ottoman Empire sort is of. like growing. Sort and of. you have the yes. war for Greek independence, I think after a few it's sometime in the 1800s so yeah i guess europe is always kind of embroiled in war up until up until now up until the post-war era i mean yeah it's pretty much war is kind of across the continent so yeah any neutral country is probably a nice place to be england liked invading places (laughs) you don't say (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, we we got that spirit. We got that spirit in Cold War. We loved we loved making proxy democracies or whatever you call them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop yeah. the Ruskies. We learned it from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> learned it from watching you. So now we get to the part uh, you've all been wondering about, and this is a story that many people know by this point. Um, during a stay at a villa on Lake Geneva with Lord Byron, yes, Lord Byron, uh, <laughs> Percy Shelley, Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont, and John William Polidori, whom we know briefly from our Nosferatu episode as the author of The Vampire, which is one of the earliest vampire novels written, by the way, uh, it was suggested by Lord Byron uh, that they should all try and write a ghost story. Um, Mary was having a bit of trouble thinking of a story uh, when one night... Uh, she suggested, maybe just kind of out loud to everybody, that perhaps a corpse should could be reanimated through galvanism. And galvanism is the process of stimulating muscle movement through electrical charges. Um, that night, she had a dream about a man creating a reanimated corpse monster and being horrified with his creation. The next morning, she began working on Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, aided in a small part by Percy, who largely encouraged her to make it into a novel rather than a short story. He kind of was like the editor, let's mm-hmm. say, of Frankenstein. He was like, go on, bitch. No, I, I, I do <laughs> find this... shit. <laughs> now, give me a brief primer on who Lord Byron was again, because I, I kept doing the, the history, too, and I kept his name kept popping up. I'm like, wait, who the fuck was he? I can't remember. <laughs> he did poetry, too. Oh, yes, was he, okay, he was he largely was a poet, and he's okay. actually referenced in a couple of famous works at the time. He's actually referencing Monte Cristo a couple times, Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, like I said, I I, I could just couldn't remember he's what he was like known a, for. He's like a um, Shakespeare of his time, type, the Eternal type Bard guy. of yeah. blah 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 blah. I got yeah, you. exactly. Yes, <laughs> okay, yeah. Gotcha. He's he's largely a poet. Okay. Um, he was also like a statesman, wasn't he, or something like that? Yeah. Or, yeah. I don't know. He he had his hands in a lot of stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, Lord Byron is just, uh, it's actually funny because Claire Claremont, he was actually having, uh, an affair. I think he'd gotten Claire Claremont pregnant, which is why she was wow. there. Uh, so he was having some, so he was always having, that was the big thing about Lord Byron. He was always having an affair with somebody. And uh, wasn't the, ca- yeah. was the castle they were staying at Frankenstein Castle? Was that right? Was that what no, it no, was? No, 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 They were staying at a, at it was a villa. nearby. They were staying at a villa, but yeah, there was a Frankenstein Castle nearby. Yeah, I thought like that was interesting Alps. that she just kind of took that name. Yeah. <laughs> just from the, from the creepy, ca- creepy Castlevania castle that was down the street. Yeah. She, <laughs> so she took the name Frankenstein from Frankenstein Castle that was like, yeah, up the street, basically. In, in Geneva. <laughs> in, in Geneva. And she had gotten roughly kind of the story of like, or the idea of a person like victor frankenstein from apparently back in like the 15 1600s or some some other kind of medieval sort of time almost uh about some alchemist that was doing experiments up in the mountains or well, something I, like that oh yeah and it was supposed to be in that area yeah or something exactly. like that. yeah, yeah i got you got you got you no I, I don't know i thought the idea of her making it as a ghost story was really interesting just because you do see that because ghost stories are really fun and there is a lot of deep stuff to Frankenstein, but as we'll discuss later, it became like a financial success kind of right off the bat. It was very well, it was very marketable, I guess. You know what I mean? And so them coming up with ghost stories to just scare each other, I mean, that's a perfect way of like writing like a really popular story. You know the what I mean? Yeah. Eat the Brits, especially, like I mean, throughout most of history, the Brits have eaten up fucking ghost stories. Why yeah, do you think I mean, like ghost and horror stories are so popular? I like just Jack the Ripper during the eighteen hundreds yeah. was so popular. 
And y'all were big into Penny Dreadfuls and pulp novels and stuff when when that started becoming a thing, right? We like that was originated over there. Yeah, so I don't know, just the idea of just them getting around and thinking of ghost stories as the as the I guess the catalyst for writing this makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I like that she took that and from there created a story that is a lot more than just that. It has a lot more depth to it and it says a lot more about the human condition and about fears and emotions and um, what death means, what life means. It's it's honestly more of a character study than it is is like a ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's because of it originated as a ghost story that it definitely, yeah, because like Chrissy says, like they ate that shit up. Oh, yeah. It's horror elements, and because it came out as, or it originated as a ghost story, yeah. definitely owes its popularity to that. Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, like, it you just, think, like, years after this, like a couple <laughs> de- decades after Frankenstein was written, you hear about, uh, um, what is it? Uh, God, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, Borley Rectory? You know, yeah. Borley Rectory, which is a, That's been what they torn say is, down. yeah, it's been torn. It, it burned down, but um, yeah, they uh, it was what was called the most haunted house in England. And that mm-hmm. was a huge thing, like when it was happening and when it was still, you know, mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Uh, but it it was one of those things. It's like everybody just gets really fascinated, like especially aristocracy gets really mm-hmm. like yeah. fascinated with like the paranormal and the occult and the occult, especially yeah. the occult. There's yep. a huge like. The aristocracy was always obsessed with the occult and like spiritualism and all that sort of stuff when that was big back in like uh, late 1800s. Because well, well, who was it? It was um, Arthur Conan Doyle that was the one that tried to uh, disperse all the ideas of spiritualists and stuff. Didn't mm-hmm. he go to all those yeah. seances and everything and yes. try to be yeah. like, you're full of shit? <laughs> Even <laughs> yeah. though he, I mean, he was a member of the aristocracy, but like he knew all the infatuation with it, and he go, would always go to them and be like, "Okay, what's my dead uncle thinking right now, bitch?" And yeah. Go, I, I, <laughs> uh, <whoa? laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. The I, I feel like the level of enthusiasm about it is basically the same as now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, mm, yeah. You know, then we had ghost stories. Now we have ghost adventures hosted by Zach Bagans. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Zach Bagans' haunted museum. We'll get that sponsorship yeah. one day. Yeah, I feel like as soon as like ghosts had like a solid definition, maybe this is when they started really. That's when like our fascination like began oh, and yeah. never really ended. You know what I mean? It was like just as soon as we were, we were like, okay, they're called a specter, they're called a phantasm, they're called a ghost. Okay, that's I'm scared of that shit. <laughs> I just don't know where, like, to, at, at its at its basic. I mean, ghost stories just kind of originate out of a fear of the dark, and I mean, earlier eras are going to be more scared of like ghost stories and stuff like that because less less natural light, less time of the day, less artificial light. More places are dark, more structures are rickety, more things make sounds that you can't explain. In places like London, everyone's cramped, and so yeah. you're going to hear weird noises all the time, yeah. be it by rats or be it by your neighbors or whatever. Or by Jack the Ripper. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the fascination never goes away, but it's a very primal human thing. Is, is is what I've always thought of by what our fascination with the paranormal and with ghost stories specifically are. You always wondered what death is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah and then because we don't no know. No one can explain it. Yeah, and we don't know what comes after it. Yeah, and so even Christians think that you know there's a purgatory, and most you know most 
people would define purgatory as what ghosts are in. You know what I mean? So it has a, a vague religious connection to and stuff. So yes. I don't know. There's there's all the, all these different avenues by which the belief of the paranormal and the ability of the paranormal to scare the shit out of us has these avenues of coming back and actually, I guess, actually, you know, striking the nerve. It could be religious. Yes. It could be just primal. It could be... There's all kinds of reasons why ghost stories and stuff like that are right. scary. Yeah, and... and- I, I'm going to tend to disagree with you on the fact that ghost story people are more susceptible to ghost stories like in earlier eras because I feel like we're just as susceptible to ghost stories and being scared by ghost stories now as we were back then. See, I don't they know. They just take different forms. Yeah, I mean, I mean, have again to bring out. Have you not fucking watched some of those shows? And if you like, <laughs> look up reviews <laughs> after an episode of like most haunted or ghost adventures. You always get people like, oh my god, scared shitless by this, you know. Ah, oh, I swear I saw something. You always get people again eating this shit up. Personally, I don't trust any comments on the internet. I feel like half the comments <laughs> on the internet are there just to make other people look at their comments and say, wow, that was a good comment, I agree. And it's just like this weird echo chamber. So I don't. So someone could say they're scared about something, but they could just be like, oh, yeah, ooh, that's poop. But think about Think about any like famous ghost story now that happened in a postmodern era that was before the internet. Think about Am- Amityville Horror. Okay. Think about that. Mm. that. I mean, that's that's a story, that's a classic ghost story. And that's a ghost story that's hugely popular. Popular and that everybody knows. The reason it's hugely popular, though, is because of all the lawsuits and the fact that they might have been like creating the story that it might not have happened at all. They had a big marketing team behind them for what happened. In but that I mean, house. like, there's stories. I'm just like saying, that like, yes, there is a market for it. You're an yes, asshole. <laughs> I'm just okay. Yes, I am. Stop debunking our spooky. <laughs> I'm not debunking anything. They had to have like lawyers and shit like sue people when they but came I'm out. Saying, you and know told that them there's that other that... ghost stories that exist that exist in a postmodern era, and it's not Amityville Horror is just an example. Yeah, okay. I'm I saying, but you see, it's not just it's not just Amityville Horror. I mean, you think of the Conjuring story, and I know that you know as far as the Conjuring that movie came out relatively recently, but the story has existed for a long time. And there's yeah, the there's, story about the dolls and, existed. Yeah, the, the mm. yeah the possession of um what's the name of the doll again? Let me Annabelle. Annabelle. No, I mean the real one. Oh, I thought it was Annabelle. No, in, no, it is. It's Annabelle. Is no, it the Annabelle? dolls also known, known yeah. as the Annabelle. one in the one in L.A. The one in. Oh, yeah. you're talking about Robert the doll. Robert. That's the one. Yeah. I'm yeah. Talking. Oh, yeah, you're talking about. I, I thought you were talking about. I thought you were sticking with the Conjuring and, and no, the no, Warrens. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I, I'm saying like so the, that's oh we got Peggy the doll as well. She's a famous haunted doll that like originated on the internet but yeah. before the internet as well other than things that have been said about the warrens and we're, we're going to ignore the warrens as as, okay, as, as a credible source but they, <laughs> i mean that actual story that the conjuring is is about mm-hmm. you know that's shit that it's hard for it to be disputed do you know what i mean yeah. and it's like there's not a whole lot of lawsuits that happen against that one right you know true. what i'm saying like so there's i i feel like we're just as susceptible to to the ghost stories now Compared to earlier eras, like I mean, in, in different in the ways, 70s, I would say there was a That's haunting it, in the UK that was like real famous for being a haunting. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think these days, okay. What I'll say is we are just as susceptible, but these days it takes different degrees of evidence. To make you spooked. I agree with you, yes. You know what and, I mean? And, I, and that's what I was saying, like, I say in different forms. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so, like, during the time of Frankenstein or something like that, just 
like I said, fear of the dark, primal fears. Gay just... people existing scared people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And there wasn't as much evidence required to actually scare you out of your mind because there were a lot of crazy things. There were a lot of weird diseases. Uh, there were I a lot of you know, plague, that, cholera, like a lot of. Because people didn't understand diseases yet either. Uh-huh. Like they understood them a little bit better. Well, if we're talking about 17, 1800s, we're getting there. We're getting an understanding. Yeah, we're starting but, to kind of understand. But it. there's still a lot of invisible killers out there that people don't understand, and so that's scary. So there's so many other things that are unknown at that point, and that's what makes the stories of the unknown scary. Right. We know so much now that less stuff is scary, but it's when stuff is really unknown, like Robert the Doll. That like that one is like, what the fuck? I don't understand. Why did my yeah. Bank account get destroyed after I <laughs> yeah. took a picture of his doll. <laughs> uh, so let's finally get into the story of the novel Frankenstein. Um, Frankenstein is presented in what a lit major would call a frame narrative, which means it's a story within a story. Uh, in in the case of Frankenstein, it's a story within a story within a story. And the main story begins with a series of letters from Captain Robert Walton to his sister Margaret Walton in an unspecified year of the 18th century. Uh, largely, we believe, at least by the evidence that's given in the book, that it's late 18th century, so like 1790s. Margaret's the worst character. She fucking sucks. She's not even a character, She really. sucks <laughs> that. She's the worst character in this whole fucking book. She's not She's not even in the book, really. <laughs> That's the joke. Um, so Captain Walton is on a journey to discover the North Pole uh, when he runs into a nearly frozen Victor Frankenstein after also seeing a very large figure on his sled pulled by dogs. Uh, after getting Victor on board, he begins telling Walton his story, which begins the second layer of the story. Uh, Victor starts with how wonderful his childhood was, must be nice, uh, and how <laughs> he very much loved his adopted sister, Elizabeth Lavenza. He also describes his fascination with sciences that even in the 18th century were outdated, such as the writings of Cornelius Agrippa. First of all, I want to talk about the North Pole thing, because that's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm, I agree. Uh, the North Pole thing, it, like, the as far as we know, <laughs> the earliest actual uh, voyage... To explore the North Pole with the intent of of exploring the North Pole was um, in 1827. So this mm. even her, and that's one of the things, and we'll talk about this later. Why they talk about this being a science fiction novel is that it's like one of those things where this is a some, something that's not even happened yet, and basically like Mary Shelley is like, but what if? Yeah, you know, like, and, I, and I think that that it added to its popularity later because people saw. That people were curious about the North Pole in right. real life, and then we're reading this book, and they're like, "Oh shit, this is kind of like right on the nose." So yeah, opening it like that is is really interesting. And I had to when I first started reading the book, I had I was reading this the shit about the North Pole. I'm like, is this the same book? Like, what's going on? Like, I was expecting to read about the story of Frankenstein. It starts yeah. out with these people on a ship, and I had to Google Frankenstein letters, and I Googled it, and it was like, yes, this is the, fir- this is the first part of the book. It opens the story. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this shut up, Isaac. Book. You're stupid. And yeah. I'm like, okay, I thought this was like the, their reaction to reading the book on a boat. Yeah, because it's day. like the first couple, <laughs> it's like the first few 10 or 20 pages that it spends on. Mm. Uh, this isn't even Frankenstein yet. Yeah. It's just the beginning. And that's what a frame narrative is. Is like mm. It starts with something completely unrelated, and then it comes in with the thing that's related. You know, it's tangential stories type thing. But I, I still think that, yeah. to me, it is written like you know a Hollywood screenplay would be. Like, you have your opening thing, and then you have your flashback, and then you have your flashback within a flashback, 
and then you have the big climax at the end, and then another like flashback. Right. You know, it, it's it's all made like what I would consider a movie. It, how a movie is kind of constructed mm-hmm. these days, which is odd because no movie uses the structure of the book to tell the story. Yeah, the, of, which of is the book. frustrating, and we'll, yeah. get, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that later. But yeah, <laughs> but that's how I see it, and so that's why it's a really entertaining read, is because. I guess the structure is so familiar to someone who's read a lot of modern literature and someone yeah. who's seen a lot of modern media. Right. It fits right in for whatever reason. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, it's it's written in a very modern way. And when we because we talked about or we did an episode on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a much harder read yes. than this. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was, so was hard. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was written. um 70 years after this. So it was like, you would think it would be more modernist in writing, but it's actually just a harder read. Um, partially, and we'll, we'll talk about this later too, partially because it's very scientific. Yeah. Like it, it gets too detailed, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, it's woody as shit. It's, yeah, he's yeah. also a very, he must have been. <laughs> what was it, Robert Louis Stevenson? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, he might. I feel like he just had his pride as a wordsmith and as like a linguist. Yeah. And he had to flex that shit, <laughs> you know, when writing anytime. I feel like that's what it was. Whereas, you know, you think about it in the frame of this is an 18 year old girl writing this. Yes. As from the impetus of it being a ghost story. Right. It's not complicated. <laughs> yeah. It's not complicated, but it is, it does have like. It has tact. Yeah, no, it's it has, great. Like, no, it's written really well. Yeah, it's written really well, but it's simple enough yeah. to you that the story comes across very, very importantly. It's not like the author's trying too hard. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. is what <laughs> that's what Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde feels like. Is like okay, this guy just wants to prove that he can write, and I'm the yeah. like I get that. Man. Yeah, <laughs> which is weird because he also wrote like Tre- Treasure Island, which is meant for kids, right? And so, exactly. and it had to be dumbed down. I haven't read Treasure Island in years and years, but I can it's guarantee my you, stepdad's favorite book. Yeah, but I can guarantee Next to you, The Hobbit. Oh God, I do like The Hobbit. Talk about wordy bullshit. I do like The Hobbit I'll, a lot. Though. I hate The Hobbit. That's great. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> do I think it should have been three movies? No, <laughs> no, no. But I do like do The Hobbit. But uh, I don't know, just. The, the structure of Frankenstein is really fun, and uh, I don't I don't know I don't know how else to I, I want to talk a little bit more about the plot because then that gets us into like the headier stuff of yeah. why Frankenstein is good. But the opening is is very effective at making it an entertaining story, and like you said, bringing to light like something that's very relevant to their time. Because even if the first voyage to the North Pole with the express intent to get to the North Pole was in, you said, 27? Yes. They mm. must have been talking about it. There must have been oh, like yeah. other voyages that were, let's see how far north we can go. You know, I can yeah. see that being like a paper headline. Yes. Of, this is the first one to go 100 miles into the Northern Circle. Even though, you know, that's a, 19, that would be 1920s. That's a 1920s <laughs> newsreel voice. Whatever, you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it is kind of interesting, just as a side note, that around the time around the time that Shelley wrote Frankenstein, a hundred years later, they were it was the first like real voyage to the Antarctic, the South Pole. Oh really. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, which I don't know. It's kinda of like how those two events were kind of that far apart from each other that the North Pole was relatively uh 
it, like the the South Pole was relatively recent compared to the North Pole. I don't know why. And then 300 years after that, no one's allowed to go there at all because of secretive government research installations <laughs> that are there because they're they're investigating ancient alien pyramids that are used to transfer energy across the globe. Well, Meta- Metallica's been there. Metallica, really? the, the Antarctic, yes. Yeah. Yes. Why? Because they could. So they could say that they played on all seven continents. Did they play it in Antarctica? Yeah, they played yeah. in Antarctica. They played a show where everybody was wearing headphones. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know you didn't know about that. Yeah. I didn't. Okay, yeah. I learned something Mars today. Mars Ulrich liked money. Yes. <laughs> how, how do you make money going to the Antarctic? I, Ask Mars. <laughs> that is such a big like financial undertaking to yeah. get there, get all the gear to get there. How do you make money playing for like three research scientists that live on that one <laughs> that one like northernmost like okay temperature place? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't want to touch briefly on because this first part of the book, like about his childhood and his obsession with like ancient arts is really interesting because it kind of gives him like because it, it, it kind of talks about his kind of mindset going into what he's about to do of like how he like likes all these ancient arts and how like the impossible even though it was proven you know bullshit later mm. on he still like has the ideals like the the untethered ideals of these old scientists these old alchemists back in the day mm. and it, it's like he's trying to basically prove that maybe these things could be real I guess it like later in the book and like how he has, he has that mindset leading up to the events of him making the monster. I didn't think he's that a one named Zach Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was him trying to prove that they're real. Uh, what I got from it was the feeling of, I think he even says something to the, to the extent of, you know, within every work of art or within every piece of literature, there is a kernel of truth. And we hear that a lot, right. you know, within every story, no matter how fantastic yeah. it is, there is a kernel of something there. And so I don't know if he was trying to necessarily prove these debunked alchemists, right? Right. But he was trying to find the scraps of truth that they were talking about and apply and it to modern that's science. That's really what I mean. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Is that there was something that they were getting at that was true. Yeah. Even if it was backed by bullshit Yeah, science. exactly. And and it was eluding modern scientists because they were unwilling to learn to learn from history. Yeah, exactly. Because right. they're unwilling and because like the first the first guy he and we'll talk about this in a second, but the first guy he talks to when he gets to the college, like shits all over him for reading like these these old ass books. He's like, those are old ass books. We know more than that now. You're stupid. Yeah, but man, that basically sounds like people in line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it, it does. Yeah, he's very, very judgmental. And that's more the culture that Frankenstein is, is railing against as he gets older. Early right. on, he's just fascinated by it. Yeah. And, and that's what, I mean, that's a thing that we still see basically how education kind of shapes us and forms us into what we, I guess, what is needed of us, let's say. Um, and, and how, like, the first, because, and I don't have this explicitly in the script, but uh, the first professor that he, like, is learning from is basically said, you you are reading this garbage? Yeah. This is the garbage you're reading? This is the garbage that, this is where you get your science mm-hmm. from? Like, you should be reading, here's, like, a list of books to, like, read to get caught up on modern science yeah. and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously that's something that he should be learning about. I was about to say, yeah, that's valid at the same time, yeah. but in a different way and the it's more the way of how he 
approaches telling Victor that. Yeah, and you know? anytime that you tell someone that this is bullshit, don't read about it, that's exactly when they start reading about it. Yeah, exactly. I, like what, I'm trying to think of what book. Yeah, I remember, Nazis uh, told me not to read about communism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just remember uh, a, a professor I had in college, I wanted to write a paper on Fire and Fury, or the, uh, Sound and the Fury, and, oh, she's, yeah, and yeah. she's like, Isaac, don't don't get into this. Like they're literary scholars that can't fucking like dissect this book. Don't do yeah. that. I'm like, I only want to read it more now. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't I don't know if I wrote a paper on it or not, but I still read the shit out of that book because I'm just like, this is awesome. Yeah. So just like telling someone that this is stupid or it's not worth your time always has the opposite effect. Yeah. And in 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 most spectacular fashion in this book. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. After going to college and learning more contemporary sciences, uh, Victor's mother passes away from scarlet fever after Elizabeth contracted the disease and their mother nursed her back to health. Uh, stricken by grief, uh, Victor buries himself in his experiments and eventually learns to give life to dead flesh, uh, which is, that's, I don't know how, they don't, they don't ever, ever explain in the book how, really, is, is part of it. Um, so continuing, what? He fucks them? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, life juice. <laughs> life, life juice. Come forth. <laughs> Brimming with life juice. Uh, <laughs> continuing with this experiment, he eventually creates a large humanoid from dead flesh that he is able to bring to life. Um, and he creates a large humanoid, and they say in the book about eight feet tall, because working with smaller parts is difficult. So he makes a big one. Because big things not difficult. He makes a big one. <laughs> he makes a big one. <laughs> he makes a big one. <laughs> easy to God, make that's... big. Then he can work on small. <laughs> yeah, he, exactly. he makes a big one is my inner monologue and my morning bowel movements. He makes a big one. <laughs> he makes a big one. <laughs> so when Victor was putting uh, the monster together, he had designed it to be handsome. Uh, he chose it specifically to be visually pleasing, but when it finally comes to life, it's hideous. Thank I mean, Brad Pitt to, to Steve Buscemi. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> if we're going by sort of the mental image that everyone gets of Karloff, I, I'd have fucked it. Yeah, but that's not the image. The image, basically, the way they put it is watery white eyes and yellow skin that barely clings, like, that barely hides, like, the veins and the muscles. Is... When I was reading it in my head, eh, in my head, I got... Still. <laughs> in my head, I got, and this, I'm going to refer to Joker, but not because it's timely, but you know that Death in the Family book where he cuts his own face off and then he puts it on with yeah, like yes. a staples later? Yeah. That's what Frankenstein's face looked to me in my, in like my inner eye as I'm reading the book. That's kind of how I looked at it too, it, actually. It seemed like he covered it with the flesh before he, before he did whatever the process was to bring it to life. Right. And then through the electricity or whatever it was. Like the face shriveled and got bigger or something. Something like that. Yeah. So eh, I'd still. <laughs> so horrified with what he has created, Victor runs away in fear and becomes physically ill from fear of his creation. He's nursed back to health by his friend Henry Clerval, and after four months feels better. Uh, he then receives a letter that tells him that his younger brother, William, has been murdered. Uh, with no solid evidence to the contrary, William's nanny, Justine, is convicted of the murder and hanged. Uh, Victor retreats to the mountains from guilt, and the monster finds him and begins to tell Victor his story. 
because uh, the the monster can talk. Uh, the monster has cognitive abilities and can learn and all this sort of stuff. That's kind of roughly explained. Um, the monster explains how he stumbled out of Victor's lab and eventually lives in the woods next to a cottage. Uh, he, after going basically living in the woods next to a fire that he found for a little bit. Uh, he watches the cottagers in secret and learns language from hearing them talk and learns to read from a lost book bag in the woods. Uh, when he tries to befriend them, though, they run away in horror. Angry with his ghastly appearance and the treatment he has received from humans, the monster uses notes from Victor's journal to find his estate. Yeet. Yeet. Now, the, the whole sequence of Frankenstein telling his story and him learning from the cottagers and stuff, that's the best part of the book. That's the absolute best part of the book in my Frankenstein's opinion. Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> yes, there we go. I, and I just did that just no it's fine no, I, no I got you no I, I fucked up no I should be I should be much more much more in tune with with the with the prevailing sentiment that we're not to say it, it that way the, the creature's story makes me sad oh it's very sad yeah. I feel for the creature like man Frankenstein was just like man I'm a fucking dickhead I'm gonna make this thing from from the dead people, and then he is like, oh, I don't like what I did. I'm yeah. going to run away. The monster literally wakes up and is like, where's dad? Yeah. <laughs> where's my dad? Daddy, just- please. Where <laughs> are you? Daddy, please. No, it's just, it's the best part of the book. It, it, it is so heartfelt. I mean, all of, all of Victor's stuff is very heartfelt, too. He is very, he has a wide degree of emotions, talking about family, talking about his home, talking about his pursuits, talking about the actual work that he goes into creating the monster and how he feels afterward. Like, he's very detailed in how he feels. But then, to, for to hear the monster's feelings is very interesting. And I, it's almost... They talk in the same voice, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later as far as how the story is written and how the dialogue comes across. But they come across in the same voice, and so he does sound very learned, even though he only kind of gets a rudimentary understanding of language and speech and stuff from the cottagers. But he's very eloquent. Like, he's equally eloquent to Victor. That's the only thing that kind of takes me out of it a little bit, is you feel like he should have been... He shouldn't have had the same words to describe some of the things that he describes... It makes the book work better because it's an He's easier read boy. and it's not as like pretentious, I guess. But that's like the only thing that kind of takes you out of it is that like he doesn't he has about the same level of intelligence as Victor. Well, but I am going to I'm going to say that when he does finally get back to Victor's estate, one of the things is that he does is read some of Victor's books. Um, mm-hmm. Is that he goes to his library and, and reads some of his books. So right. yeah, he may have more eloquent understanding because of that. True. Um, so that is part of it, you know, as just if we're going to talk about like mm-hmm. specific facts and stuff and how did yeah. this do this? How did that do that? See, and I think no, I think that criticism for me is one of the very similar criticisms, one of the few criticisms that actually came out at the time when it was released. Like a lot, apparently literary critics at the time also had a problem with a short <laughs> period of time that Frankenstein's monster had to learn language yeah. and then him becoming as well spoken yeah. uh, as he now, ended yeah, up being. Four months is pretty, brain. Yeah, four, four months is a pretty short time. Uh, it may have been perseverance. It may have been that the monster like had no nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Sure. No. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. What and else again, did he do? Yeah. That wasn't really meant to be a detrimental statement. I was just going to say that's the one thing that kind of takes me out of it. But otherwise, it's like my favorite part of the book because even even with the way that he does talk, the idea of struggling. Against your own nature, not knowing what you are, knowing that you're clearly not 
one of them. Right. Like looking at other humans. Yes. But you're clearly not an animal. You're not a bear. You're not a bird. You're not a frog. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not, I know, trying, to, I know, I know I'm not really trying to be funny. I know no, no, it's a no, funny no, no, way to say it, but you can you see all this other forms yeah. of life and you're the only person like you. That's a pretty, like, uh, relatable sentiment. You know what I mean? Yes. Because we're all individuals mm-hmm. and we all have our own fuck ups and problems and weirdness and stuff. And everyone feels that at some point. It's like, okay, what's wrong with me? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think if he had had a different experience with the cottagers, it would have turned out completely different, obviously, because if they had not ran, ran away from him and, uh, you know, because well, here's the thing. He got his his basically his ideal of what a person should look like from the cottagers and they were normal looking people. And then when he looked at himself in a reflecting pool and saw that he was not like that at all in comparison and relatively ugly, uh, he would say, you know, in comparison to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they ran away from him just because of how he looks, even though he was talking in a way that they would understand. And let, let's point out really quick that they do say in the book. That he is meant to be ugly beyond, like, being okay to look at. Like, he's not supposed to be anywhere near fun to look at. Like, we've watched, like, you watch the Universal, the Universal one, and yeah, he he looks kind of weird, but he is just Boris Karloff in, like, a mask, yeah. so he doesn't look ugly. We watched that Robert De Niro one. Oh that guy, he just looks like, he really just looks like he had, like, some botched surgery. Like, he looks <laughs> human otherwise. The, so a lot... The best... Again, because I'm going to reference this later, but the best translation of how the monster looks is actually Frankenhole. The way that the monster looks in Frankenhole is pretty accurate to how the book would make you think he would look. Mm-hmm. And I just think that... I don't know. The, the one thing that a lot of the adaptations miss is that he's not anywhere near lookable. Is lookable a word? Look, uh, <laughs> pleasing to behold. There you go. Yeah, he's <laughs> not that. So, unfortunately, no matter what he did, the shitty thing is, no matter what he did, the the village or the cottagers would never have been okay with him. Right. The only one that was was the one who was blind. Right. And so it just sucked. That's what sucks so hard is that there was no way he could go about it. Unless put it, he could have put a bag on his fucking head. Like, that's, <laughs> I mean, you know, Ooh, do some he could have r- done a part two, Jason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, do some of that shit and just not kill people with a machete, and you're golden. Like, I don't know. I feel like he there was a better way for him to go about it, but but trying. But the point is, he's trying to get them to accept him for how he looks and for who he is. He doesn't really want to hide who he is. Because up until that point, he's doing a lot of shit for him. He's trying to, like, make their lives easier. He understands that they're struggling. He understands their feelings. He understands the issues that they have. And he learns their issues, like right. their political and social issues that have come. Because he learns, like, their pretty much entire history, almost. Yeah. And so he doesn't want to just hide from them, be it in a hole or underneath a bag. He wants to be accepted. And he what he wants to be accepted. Yeah. But then I mean, what he, he learns is, murders, but... <laughs> well, not until that point. No, yeah, at that point he yeah. hadn't done any that, murders. At that point, his hands were clean, and <laughs> well, probably not living. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was not hashtag canceled. Oh, <laughs> not at that point. No. Oh God. Um, but I don't know that. It feels like one of the points is that 
no matter how hard he tried, he would never be accepted. And that's the thing that he, the, it's the thing that he had to yeah. gain acceptance of or rail against, which he ended up railing against. So. Right. So, <clears throat> continuing with the monster story um, that he's telling Victor, uh, learning William is Victor's brother, the monster kills him in a rage and frames Justine. This is the story that, that the monster is saying. Uh, the monster pleads with Victor to make him a female companion. Because like we said before, he's the only one of his kind. He wants somebody else like him. Uh, Victor reluctantly agrees at first, but then decides he can't cope with creating another monster uh, after the first one turns out so horribly and destroys his progress. Uh, and, and, you know, he has this whole section and he's like, well, what if the well, what if she's as, at, at just as bad as you and kills everybody? What if she's worse than you? What if she doesn't even like you? You know, like, what's like, how am I going to guarantee anything from creating another one of you? Like, it could just end badly. That's his whole conflict throughout the whole thing. And the one that weirds me out is that he's like, oh, what if they propagate and create more little monsters? Yes. And I'm like, you have the ability to not let that happen. Yeah. Don't let them reproduce. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the monster, vowing revenge after seeing Victor destroy his progress, uh, tells Victor that he will be with him on his wedding night, which Victor um, basically interprets as, I'm going to kill you on your wedding night. <laughs> um, so having traveled to Ireland with Henry during this time and later separating so Victor can t continue this work, Victor returns to Ireland to find Henry dead, killed by the monster. Uh, Victor suffers another breakdown and is imprisoned for the murder of Henry only to be cleared by his father. Later, this is after he's, you know, cleared of the murder, and after, basically, Elizabeth proposes to him, and they get married. Uh, later, on the night of his marriage to Elizabeth, Victor is prepared to fight the monster. He has, like, all this, like, you know, all these weaponries and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then... The it, it, and like I said, interpreting the monster as a message as a threat on his own life. Instead, the monster kills Elizabeth and jeers at the body when Victor finds it. He basically is you know Way. pointing at the body, saying, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly." Um, so the Victor then vows revenge to kill the monster and chases the monster all the way to the North Pole. Well, the monster is impervious to cold or not. That's never really explained in depth, but I guess just the monster is made of dead flesh, so he can't get cold, I guess. Um, although he is scared of fire, which is kind of established. Like, he's scared of, like, like heat. He gets burned and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and this is when it rounds back to Walton's narrative. Uh, this is when the, the eggshell closes on the whole story, let's say. <laughs> um, and uh, Walton tells his sister that after telling his story, Victor dies from exhaustion. And this is after, of course... Uh, there's a whole thing where the boat gets stuck in the ice and Victor gives this big speech to everybody like, this is how you, you know, this is how you, uh, you persevere and all this sort of stuff. And it's a whole big thing. Um, <laughs> but then Victor dies of exhaustion. <laughs> um, Walton then witnesses the monster mourning the death of Victor, uh, having not been satisfied with his death. And then basically the monster goes off to basically die. Um, and that's the end. Um, and it's, I don't know. The ending is really upsetting <laughs> to me. Um, I, it's, it doesn't, you know, there's not really, there is closure, but there's not closure. There's not closure in the sense that nobody's satisfied. Um, you, you don't know if Robert Walton actually discovers the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're concerned about? <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, there's just so much. I there. like to think that they die at sea. They all die. I don't know why. 
Yeah, that's, they just all died. That's depressing. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why, I mean, but that's happened, probably true. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what happened realistically with like anyone yeah, exactly. trying to explore up there. Yeah, they probably did die at sea. You're yeah, right. That's that's kind of just how I guessed it happened. I don't know. There was never a, a letter of, hey, I'm on my way back, Margaret. See you in a few days. Hey, you didn't get that letter after after the one with Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster at the end. It's been four weeks later. And Margaret's like, that bitch is dead. <laughs> um, I don't know. The way it wraps up. How do I feel about the way it wraps up? I think the 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 takeaway. Is that uh, both Victor and the monster are so imperfect as 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 entities, right? That it was going to happen to one of them, and like the other was the entire reason for their others being at that point. Like, yeah. Victor fucked up. Victor's whole fuck up was not. Caring for the monster and making sure that the monster had a footing or just killing it after he made it. Right. Could have done one of two things. He could have cared for it and tried to teach it things and actually been a father figure. Or he could have, in his horror, been like, I'm ending this. Book's over. Yeah. But instead he chose to completely neglect all responsibilities. And yeah, he is responsible for the deaths of, what, four or five of his family members and his wife? Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. He's in, indirectly responsible for yeah. his father's death. And yeah. yet Frankenstein Frankenstein's spurred on entirely by ignorance. Frankenstein doesn't have any idea what it means to be human. It's trying to figure that out and is shunned at every turn. And rather than rather than trying to learn, gains the most base human instinct of revenge. Becomes more right. human than than you would like to admit, because vengeance is like a, a very specifically human trait. Right. <laughs> this is going to happen a lot uh, again in this episode. But you said Frankenstein, not Frankenstein. Okay. Monster, yes. <laughs> I'm the specific. I'm because we're talking about both characters. It's his creation. <laughs> yes. He can have the same last name. It's. Fun. <laughs> well, what, I, what I'm saying when we're talking about the two, it's it gets confusing yes, when you're true. not specifying which yes. one you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, you, you meant the monster, not. I'm gonna start saying something different. I'm gonna start saying Banana Man. Okay. Instead of monster. Banana yes, man. I love it. <laughs> okay. Fine. So what? What do you? How do you feel about the ending of this book? And how do you feel how it wraps up, Chrissy? I quite like it. I said that I like the fact there's no real closure to it because it's like the, the monster just disappears. You don't technically know if he dies or not. He could have been living out his best life. You never know. <laughs> but I. Yeah, I mean, he he says that he's going off to die though. Is the thing? Yeah, I know. Like, he says he's like, I am. I'm going to die now. I'm going off to go die because I feel awful. <laughs> I mean, I say that all the time, and I'm not dead yet. <laughs> yeah. And yet death eludes me. <laughs> but no, like, as a, I, I like the fact there's no real closure with it, because that makes it scarier, because again, you know, as you said, you know, he says he's going to go die, but does he die? <laughs> but did you die? Fra Frankenstein 2? <laughs> Return God. of Jafar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, oh that'd be amazing. Oh, I'd man, watch the shit out of that. Return of the Jafar. I'm getting that on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, Please do. Podcast of the Dead Merch. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, does he go off and die? He doesn't have a purpose. He, he's lost his yeah. purpose. Like... Yeah, his purpose was getting revenge on Victor yeah. for being a deadbeat dad. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you could didn't even he didn't even get that, you know, like alimony, yeah. you, child support. Child support. Yeah. You could argue that in that moment he feels the pangs of wanting to die, but then being in the grip of death, as most things that are alive do, he then decides not to and goes back, you know, and starts wreaking havoc again. Yeah, you could argue that, but I mean. Mm. I don't think that was the intent. I think the intent of the ending is that he does go off and he is no more. That he will never goes to the realm of man again, or what, however he describes what he plans to do to Victor when they're alive. Right. So, it is kind of a sad ending, but it's a fitting ending. Yeah. I think it would have been worse yeah. if the monster had been killed by Victor first. Yeah. I think it would have been worse that way. Because... Then that's all kind. Have been a cop out. Yeah, because then that's all kinds of. That's kind of a rejection of all the themes that are in place in the book. Exactly, if Victor yes. would have won, yeah, because Victor is the one mostly in the wrong for trying. Victor is a dick. Well, no, I wouldn't say he's a dick, but he Victor. is. He's trying to <laughs> cheat death. He's trying to. He, I mean, he's trying I to play. He's, I just feel he's a dick because of the way he spurns the monster. And I true, yeah, yeah. no, I definitely. feel for the monster I, as a monster fucker. But <laughs> he tries to play God for his own personal inquisitiveness and possibly fame. He thinks and all bonus. Yeah, <laughs> he thinks when he's doing this that, you know, he's going to be the next big shit in science. You know, he's advancing humanity, advancing mankind. He doesn't really say it explicitly, I don't think, but that is supposed to lead to his exaltations later as one of the top bitches in science. I think after he realizes that he can bring life to dead flesh, yes. I think initially part of it, a large part of it is grief over his mother being dead. And he's just kind of like, I'm going to yeah. throw myself into this and just see what happens. And I just don't want to focus on anything but what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And then I think later, yes, it is a little bit of an ego thing. It is a bit of an ego trip. And then when he does create the monster, it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm Science is canceled. Uh, <laughs> doesn't he... Science is over, party. <laughs> Because he's, he's researching the same thing all along. I guess, yeah, it is the death of his mother that spurs him into it as yeah. much as he goes into it. Because that doesn't it. really yeah. start in earnest until after his mother dies. But that's what he's always yeah. studying. And he actually puts it down for yeah. a while. Yeah, Galvanism was like his main focus. Yeah, so that, yeah, so he's never not been doing that. So it's not like the death of his mother made him think along different lines. It just accelerated his progress. Correct. Let's put it that way. Yes. Um, but yeah, he was wrong for trying to... Yeah, do something that he didn't fully understand and wasn't prepared to deal with the consequences yes. for. And so he's the Absolutely. one, he's the main villain, is what I would say. Frankenstein yeah, does bad things, but and for bad reasons, too. Revenge isn't a good reason to do anything. Yeah. But it's much more, it's almost more human than, than Victor. The monster's motivations are more human than the human in the story, because the human, Victor... Is trying to subvert death. He's trying to kind of I don't I don't know pervert science is how yes. a lot of people at the time yeah. are, are telling him that. Yeah. Whereas 
the monster, Mr. Banana Man. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> Whereas Banana Man, he just wants acceptance, a very human trait. Yeah. Is very sad when he lacks or when he fails to find it, a very human trait. And then craves revenge when it's all denied to him and he loses like his one source of happiness. So all of those are superhuman, which is crazy because, yeah, does he have a soul? That, that was the one takeaway from the, the weird De Niro one that we were watching that I thought was interesting. He does yeah. ask, you know, humans have a soul. Everyone else has a soul. What about me? Do I have a soul? Yeah. Does the monster, does Banana Man have a banana soul? <laughs> 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 of all of the sentences I expected to hear today in this episode, does Banana Man have a banana soul? Was not one of them. <laughs> so much... Also, no. I think I woke Loki up last. <laughs> Now, when we start talking about souls, that's getting into, like, vaguely religious talk. True. Um, and, man, it's not that I don't want to get into religious talk, and I don't, like, I just feel like I am not an authority on it. I, True. I, I, True. I don't really know how to approach talking about souls, let's say. But if you're going to go with the concept of, of a soul, let's say, and a, a soul mm-hmm, like is... A Facebook poll. Does, does Frankenstein's monster have a soul? <laughs> does Banana Man have a banana soul? <laughs> uh, the, you know, if we're talking about souls, and if you believe in a soul, or if you believe in the idea of what a soul is, and how it maybe is bestowed by a creator, would you have the power to bestow a soul upon something you created as a human, as a mortal, let's say? Hmm. I, I, I would say generally no. I would say yeah, that... Yeah, like a car doesn't have a soul. Like, if you build a car... Car doesn't have a soul unless you're a car, yes. he- a gearhead, and you're like, no, this this machine totally has a soul, bro. And this V8 it, is like the, the cleanest. It, yeah, <laughs> or, unless, or unless you're Stephen King, you know, Christine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, one of one of the things that that gets into is how much is the body tied to the soul? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. if you're talking about body parts that you've used from other people, how much are the souls of those people that you're taking the body parts from tied to the body parts that you're putting on this new thing? You know, or if you want to go with okay, some part of the soul is tied to the body, uh, then that would mean that the monster has the souls of all the people that it's made up of, and that it's a a it's sort of a weird amalgamation. Maybe it has multiple personality, you know, mm. in it or something like that. Yeah. And that's I know that's getting into more complicated talk, but I mean, like I don't know. It, I think part of it is how much is the body actually related to the soul, and how much does the soul actually leave the body when the body dies, you know. And, you know, and if you're going to talk about ghosts, if it's really a ghost story, you're talking about how much are ghosts tied to their earthly bodies and do they have unresolved conflicts that they need to stay on Earth for, in which case their soul probably is still there, you know, or at least on the ground in which they died or the ground in which they're buried. Mm. <laughs> you know, it gets into more complicated talk when you talk about souls. Yeah, because you know I'm I mean? sitting here and I'm trying to think. Even in classical theory on, like, you know, spirituality, are humans the only things with souls? Do do animals have souls? Or is it only animals with a certain degree of higher intelligence that have souls? Like, dogs and cats have clear emotions. Dolphins have clear emotions. Do they have souls? Because if do, is it the emotions that make the soul? Or is it the ability to determine one's future and actions? 
because even then animals can determine their own actions, but they, like they they're limited in what they can do. They can't make a civilization. Shit you know I mean? over there does not have a soul because he's ginger. Uh, yeah you're right getting into souls is a little bit of is a little bit too out there and certainly i don't they they don't we are getting a little off track because shelly doesn't mention souls at all right but yeah we're just trying to make our own inferences you know like Mm -hmm. we're we're trying to talk about okay if we're talking about theories Mm -hmm. and, and we're talking about maybe more things that weren't in the book yeah. directly things that we can kind of branch off of souls it's an interesting discussion it's just i just don't know how much progress we can really make when not it's being such an authority a, on it yeah. yeah when it's such a floaty topic you yeah know and I, mean? I think that i feel like the the meaning changes depending on your belief system too true because like me being fairly agnostic where i don't really care one way or the other about sp- matters of the spiritual soul to me is just I guess to me it almost comes back to self-determination and knowledge of good and evil and stuff like that. Well, yeah, and it depends also if you, uh, you know, follow a religion that believes in reincarnation. Exactly, man. And that's yeah. where I was kind of going re- with Reincarnation that too. is a whole other thing, too. Like, yeah. that's a whole other, like, complicated thing. Like, okay, so then there isn't a soul within the body. So that would mean that Frankenstein's monster, if it's not bestowed a soul by Frankenstein, has no soul because the other souls have already left the bodies. You know what I mean? Yeah, he would have had to... Frankenstein's monster, Banana Man, would have had to been bestowed a soul through the death of another organism. Yeah. And without that death of another organism, through a nat... Because I'm, I'm assuming uh, through reincarnation... I don't, I don't know enough about reincarnation. I might be muddling this up. But I assume the, the, the process of, of reincarnation and the, the cycle of life happens. The death of one organism sparks the death of another organism at some other part of the globe through, you know, just eternal immutable the de- forces. The death begets a death or death begets a, a life, a birth. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, okay. the, 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 a soul ends in one instance and begins in another Okay, because you said death and death. I was, oh, okay, I was, yeah, yeah, I meant, yeah, I, meant yeah, I, yeah, I did so mean birth. So a death... Little of a butterfly effect there. Yeah, 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 you're right. No, I did not mean to do yeah, butterfly no, effect. Yeah, no, generally in reincarnation, as I understand it, and I am not an authority on it either, but death normally begets life, yes. Right, yeah. It, there is a, if something is dead, something is born. So life to come out of nothing, then, is almost a perversion, because, yeah, there would be no soul to inhabit it. It wasn't its time to, to have anything right. imbued within yeah. it. So, I mean, if you wanted to look at it through that respect, then... Oh, gosh, it's... So, it, yeah, it, it gets a lot co- more complicated. <laughs> Yeah. Thinking about it just now very briefly. Is Anakin Skywalker a Frankenstein's monster of sorts as he was life made from nothing? But he was He was Anakin before he was pieced together after the fire pit. No, I mean like <laughs> baby Anakin. As Anakin no, be- as a human in general. Because oh, was he was he uh, like a Virgin Mary type birth thing? Yes, was that what was, it was? He was created by the Force, essentially, is what it's. But where, where was is, that canon? Where, where did that come out? That was that was in the first, in Episode One, Phantom Menace. That? Yeah, uh, oh. it was it was that he was like a Force baby, essentially, but is it's what it was. Theorized he was created. that Palpatine did it. So Palpatine is the 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 creator, and <laughs> well, Anakin is the okay, monster. So, okay, so we're. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to continue with this discussion yeah. at all. <laughs> but, but to kind of quickly debunk that, is that, is that if he was created, let's say he was, you know, we ignore the theory that he was created by Palpatine, it, the theory that he is a force 
entity. The force is what gives everything life anyway. So if the force is inside of you, you have a force soul, let's say. So then that would be, he is it, it basically the most pure soul, um, either that being good or bad, apparently, you know, it's, it turns out bad later, but yeah. But I mean, yes, he does have a soul. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. This is this is complicated talk, yeah. isn't it? It's very. You know, so, I, I didn't think that souls would be kind of where where it would kind of go off the rails. But yeah, it's really easy to talk about human morality and <laughs> a being with no with no upbringing because so much of what we believe, as far as morality goes, is through it's nature nurture stuff. So much of our beliefs about good and evil morality comes from nurture. Right, comes from having some sort of childhood. And that's why the monster Banana Man has such a morality problem because he was never nurtured. Right, exactly. He has no, he has no, no moral base. Victor didn't spray him with a with a squirty bottle and go no. <laughs> right, he has no moral base, and everything that he's learned. I mean, you could argue that like what he learned. Like nurture wise was from the cottagers. Well, and from his treatment of the villagers, mm. but, because or but I mean the way the villagers treated him, That's chasing true. him out and everything. So he does learn a lot of negative stuff in his nurture phase. True, and then he gains a little bit of positive stuff, but it's not direct. Like no one's teaching him everything. He is. There is a little bit of voyeurism to it. Yeah, which in itself is kind of a negative trait, and so he even gains his positive traits. Through something that, like maybe not negative, but it's bless you. It's ill-gotten, is what I was gonna say. Is like even even his positive stuff is kind of it, it's secondhand. It's it's not directly to him, and he warps a lot of it to his own. I don't know. Like unfortunately, he's just left to fend for himself. And any of us with like if, if any of us woke up with amnesia tomorrow. With no idea who we are or where we came from or what good and bad means, and left to fend entirely to ourselves. Like I feel like that would be a really gnarly predicament to be in, and yeah. you would probably come at some really come to some really negative and, conclusions about life and humanity. And just because of the nature of humanity, it would be a lot harder to do it if you were disfigured or you looked really different from mm, everybody yeah. else. And and I think like he just learned everything that he learned about being human was in the worst way possible. Yes. You know what I mean? So, it, you know, it's one of those things that, yeah, nature versus nurture is a very big part of understanding why he became like he became. Because mm -hmm. his nature, unfortunately, is to be a monster. Like, he, he comes out of the womb. He didn't come out of the womb, but he comes to life understanding that he is a monster. Yes. And how does anyone come back from that First realization, yeah. like if that's your that he, first memory that you have. Yeah, the first memory he has is Victor running away. Yeah. <laughs> so any any person that like if you had like let's say first memory of you in first grade walking into your first grade class and the entire class uh, class like scurrying like roaches as soon as they see you, <laughs> you know what I mean? That would like be emotionally scarring. <laughs> Jeez, that was a look. Round dog bark. I love when my neighbors. Is that coming from there? Yeah. That's... Are we getting that was my dog interference all the way from Britain? That's my neighbors. <laughs> oh, my windows wow. are close. <laughs> nice. It's a good Guest dog. appearance. So, uh, go. <laughs> do you have any final thoughts on the on the plot before we move on, Chrissy? 
Not the stuff we haven't already covered, no. As I said, the plot is just a really good sort of... It's a morality tale. It's like, hey, don't... It's almost like a, like a warning. Like, hey, don't fuck with this. This is what happens when you fuck with this. Yeah. It, it's definitely like a reap, you reap what you sow type story. Victor deserved it. Yeah. The monster is a good boy. <laughs> and, um... I ain't single, so but the monster can still call me. I guess <laughs> Stephen would look. Stephen would set something up. I mean, what's my takeaway from this? I mean, it is to a certain degree, it's a commentary on you know unfettered look at the scientific. Well, is kind of mankind's ruin. We do mm-hmm. always come back to bite ourselves in the ass. You know, if you want to look at the the advent of the. Of the industrial uh, industrialization of humanity with climate change, you want to look at the atomic bomb and its ability to destroy us. We can we can do. I mean, like look at any kind of weaponry, um, technology like advancements yeah. over the past you know any any decades. Th- that type of stuff is like too much. Too much science is going to hurt us a lot, especially with no regard for morality. Zach here. Just a quick reminder to follow us on social media. Uh, that would be at PC of the Dead on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Podcast of the Dead is our Facebook page. And then if you want to email us about either movie suggestions or just to talk, then you can reach us at podcastofthedead at gmail.com. If you want to contribute to the show in a monetary way and want to help us make better content in the future, then you can also go to our Patreon and contribute there. Uh, the easiest tier is just First Blood, which is a dollar a month. And that is patreon.com slash PC of the Dead. So Shelley's approach to writing style in Frankenstein is usually regarded as being influenced and one of the preeminent examples of the school of thought known as Romanticism that arose in Europe in the late 17th, early 18th century. Romanticism is usually defined as a philosophical, artistic, and writing style that focuses on emotions, like the beauty of nature and the rejection of accepted norms and values present in society at the time. During this time in art, the term also became associated with a departure an objection to classicism, or what a lot of people call neoclassicism, right. which is a strict adherence to the styles of art and literature uh, from the classic Greek and Roman traditions, um, which you saw really heavy in the Renaissance in Europe. And that kind of mm-hmm. trying to stay true to how art used to be and hearkening back to the old days and stuff right. kind of remained in place right up until the 1700s, you know, uh, early 1700s. Or, I guess, mid-late 1700s. The rules for art and poetry that exist around Europe for centuries no longer needed to be dogma for writers and painters, and the experience of the individual took front and center over a focus on, like, the more lofty ideas of, like, the ethereal stuff, like gods and gods, creation, unwavering, and, like, immutable fate, and cosmic justice. So, romanticism was... One of the big parts of, like I said, I, I did some research into like romantic novels and stuff like that at the time. And Frankenstein's actually considered to be one of the premier romantic works at the time. And it's really 
primarily due to the way that Shelley talks about emotions and stuff. And we right. talked about this before. Frankenstein's <clears throat> is, is an incredibly emotional novel in that it's talking about not really the the horror stuff. Like, it's hard to call it a horror novel to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah it, it, I mean, <laughs> it, it kind of focuses on a lot of different things. But yeah, the kind of the interpersonal aspect and the, the emotional aspect and kind of the emotional turmoil mm-hmm. that, that Victor goes through is a large part of the book. Yeah, and all the stuff that Banana Man uh, talks about <laughs> is really, uh, <laughs> is, is it's really well detailed. And it goes in, it doesn't think about life in terms of... Lofty ideals. Yeah, or, or, or yeah, the, there's no fate that's really talked about. That's not like that God is punishing him or that God is, you know, the thing at work. Humans are, are, are the, the main thing. Right. I guess. if I, I, That's a weird way to say it, is humans are the main thing, because that should be obvious mm-hmm. for a lot but of But no, stuff. I know what you mean. It's like, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with divine... Uh, you know, intervention or any sort mm-hmm. of that thing. It's all man-made turmoil. Yeah, because, I mean, Renaissance was all about, like, glory to God or glory to the past. They like uh, All of the Renaissance was trying to bring back ancient traditions and, like, updating them and, like, just the architecture and everything was all meant to speak to something bigger than ourselves. Right. Whereas Romanticism yeah. really tried to bring it back to the self- itself right. romanticism no yeah I, I, it's a weird no, no, no. message to say but yeah like romanticism focuses on you as a person and what you go through matters and is important and really changes the way that you look at the world which is another tenet of romanticism is looking at nature and seeing how things are beautiful what might be inside you might not be beautiful, but it's those two things kind of in like concurrence with each other, like working to create the world that you create or the world that you're in. And um, I don't know, like there were other, I was looking at other works of romantic literature. Um, romanticism was pretty prevalent up till the rise of realism. Realism is kind of what killed romanticism due to focus on facts, focus on reality, like Hard, hard, hard nose looking at life the way that it sucks and stuff like that. You know what I mean? You, That's you, what realism is. There is there any, like, realist writings that you think are, like, that can kind of give us a better definition of, like, an example? Let's see. I would have to look one up really quick because I can give you some examples of romanticism. And romanticism is kind of broken up into both European romanticism and American romanticism. Um, romanticism uh, from Europe, one that we've talked about before, because you're into it right now, is Count of Monte Cristo and right. Dumas as a whole. Right. Romanticism is very big about kind of adventure, and it's it is the the st- the struggle of the self, yes, and how those emotions play out. But it is definitely how do you say it? Background events are important too, like kind of like world hi- history yeah, events that true. are happening that are kind of re- relating to the way people uh, experience the world. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, yeah, going back to kind of Monte Cristo because it is a good romantic work. is mm-hmm. is about like how the different sides that people took in that whole conflict were very much defined. You know, their relationships with people later on, mm-hmm. even like the way their children interacted with people and that sort of thing. And I think that's. I don't know. Yeah, that focus on on interpersonal relationships was like a huge tenet, I guess, of like romanticism and mm-hmm. romantic literature. And 
whenever I think of romanticism, I always think of like the music because I, I I think like because I have a big like I like a lot of classical music and like you know I listen to mm. a lot of Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky is one of my favorite. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're right. You're totally right. But I, I love Tchaikovsky, and Tchaikovsky is very much a romantic uh, a romantic classical composer, and mm-hmm. a lot of his works focus on kind of like interpersonal relationships and stuff and like the the you know like the ideals that he's trying to get across through the music or that his music was you know the operas that he wrote music for were very much about like romantic ideals like feelings and and yeah romanticism uh, that's one thing i think a lot of people and i mean even i to a certain degree you know you, you hear the term romanticism and you think romance that's not necessarily what it is it's about it's about looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses, I think is yes. the, how, how we would yeah. say it. Because another good example of European romanticism was Ivanhoe, which uh, was very much about romanticizing the life of the Middle Ages, which it was looking at what they had to deal with at that time, but not focusing so much on the plagues and the and the health right. risks and the gnarly battles yeah. and everything, but focusing on what those people must have been feeling and the the feeling of, you know, bringing humanity into a new era and the feeling of, you know, humanity being at the forefront of some great truth. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. Ivanhoe is very much about adventure and trying to, I guess, not really modernize the Middle Ages. Uh, I was looking for some ideas for or some examples of realism. Um, some of these I don't know. Chekhov was one of the authors that was mentioned. So Chekhov is apparently... Yeah, Chekhov's a very realist writer. Yeah. The one that I found that I know of that I could actually speak to is The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Oh, yeah, The yeah. Crucible is very much a work of realist literature because oh, yeah. it didn't window dress anything. Oh, no, no, no. It definitely oh, no. was giving you the facts and how gnarly they were and everything like that. And realism doesn't sugarcoat anything, whereas romanticism is kind of looking at the beauty of nature and trying right. to tie that back to how that makes the individual feel and yes everything might not be perfect but man is trying to make it perfect and man is trying to make the best out of it and how does that person feel in that point of view or in that like struggle realism is about this is the shit that happened. It yeah. fucking sucked. This and is something actually. Nothing will ever get better, and you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that. I, and like I said, the, the Crucible is a good one. I'm trying to find another. I think the really Crucible good is example. Actually, I feel like a lot of people have read the Crucible, and I think that's a good example to use because mm-hmm. yeah, the Crucible is very much about like okay, we're not gonna sugarcoat anything. This is what actually happened. This is how it actually happened in in you know whatever yeah. era that what like the 1600s and you know and, yeah. And to give you an idea, like one of the definitions you could of you could say is it's it's broadly is a faithful representation of reality, or uh, it like basically it denotes just showing things how, how they are, not how we feel them to be, I guess is how you would boil it down Correct. to. Uh, yeah. And yeah, Frankenstein's definitely not that. It's very flowery, to a certain degree, uh, in my opinion. Um, the language is very is very flowy, is very not stilted, but even talking about horrific things, Mary Shelley finds some a little bit of beauty in it and talks about it in a beautiful way. Which is very oh, yeah. romantic. <laughs> right. I mean, she was married to one of the biggest romanticists, so. Yeah. True. True. But so, Frankenstein embodies the ideals of romanticism very clearly. The writing style is poetic, yet simple. 
and Walton, Victor Frankenstein, and his infamous monster, Banana Man. They all speak in a similar tone of voice with similar diction, like we spoke about before. They all... It's a very easy read because of that, because it's all in, in, a, in a very similar tone and similar structure. And mm-hmm. I think that works to its great benefit. Mm-hmm. But each of them spend much of their time on the page looking at wonder at the world around them, and then quickly they turn back inward and dwell on their own insecurities, their fears, their flaws, and their motivations that drive them. And what's lost when we come into, like, you know, the plays and the movies and everything else <laughs> that has followed yeah. the original book, yeah. what's <laughs> lost is a sense of human reflection that makes Frankenstein more than just a horror story a more than just a tale about a monster or even something about like a science fiction classic which a lot of people do regard it to be um the most riveting part of the book like i said is the is like when the monster is focusing on his own frightened ignorant idea of what it means to be human and how that progresses through his interactions with all the people he comes across just the same victor's inner monologue they're, they're fraught with personal triumphs and adulation, only to quickly turn into doubts, dread, and questions about his own humanity faced with the horrifying thing that he's created. And so it's these deep inner feelings that evolve Frankenstein from just a work of gothic horror into what many consider to be one of the most iconic, iconic examples of romantic literature. And it even includes a reference to The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which is a poem by Samuel Taylor Coldridge, And it's considered to be one of the first examples of English romanticism. And it's also a pretty fucking ripping Iron Maiden song. (laughs) I I was literally going to reference Rodney. No, and I think it's interesting that she talks about that. Because, I mean, if we talk about Rime of the Ancient Mariner, that definitely has a lot of romantic themes to it. Definitely about man's self-determination, not willing to stick to accepted mores. This is the whole thing about killing the albatross. The albatross is a big superstition and everything in the book. And him shooting it down. And I remember talking about this in AP English when I was a kid. He doesn't shoot it down for any reason other than that he wants to. Because he fucking can. Yeah, exactly. And that's the actual literary analysis of why he does it. There's no symbolism to that. He does it because he can, which... Again, that shows like, you know, the individual setting his own path and showing, you know, looking inward, looking at his own emotions and saying, I don't want to just fucking do whatever just because that's what I've been taught to do. That's what society tells me to do. Uh, I have a voice and I'm going to do it by killing this bird. Are you saying that (laughs) because he lives in a society? <laughs> Joker is the preeminent is the preeminent movie of romantic literature. Oh my god! Oh my god! The Killing Joke stands alongside Frankenstein as one of the best romantic artworks Jesus of modern days. Oh my god! Uh, thank you for spoiling everything. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy just gave us a I got you fam look. <laughs> I did so one, one of the things that we have kind of alluded to over this the course of this whole thing is that um, there's a lot you know we have the classic conflicts like when, we, when you talk in uh, English or literature about conflicts we have different sets of yeah. conflicts like man versus self man versus nature man versus 
society, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know. Versus uh, it ruined the term. I'm so yeah, sorry. I know. Man versus we live in a society. <laughs> um, Man versus Yaqueen Phoenix. You know, in twenty three hundred or two three two thousand three hundred. Did you say Yaqueen Phoenix with a Y? How do you, how do you pronounce it's it? It's Joaquin. Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix is like I'm trying to use, his like South American cousin. Or I'm something. trying to use the J sound. I thought that's. <laughs> How do you actually pronounce it again? It's walking. Walking. Okay, because I'm going to use it so many more times in this review. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just confused. I've never heard anybody say Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, okay. I yeah. guess I just pronounce things wrong. I pronounce things the way they appear to me on the page, and I always get corrected because <laughs> I pronounce things wrong. Um, yeah, like Banana Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish I, I could allow. I wish I could allow everyone to believe that that was Chrissy actually spitting drink out of their nose or something like that when Instead that happened. Of blowing their nose, but yeah, it was just blowing it wasn't their even nose. Blowing my nose, I was laughing and I was just worried that I did that something would come out my nose because <laughs> I felt something move. So, okay, yeah. but anyway. Anyway, what I was going to say is, in 2300, uh, one of the classic literary conflicts is going to be man versus Joker. But, you know, <laughs> regardless, <laughs> specifically Phoenix's Joker. But I was going to boil it down to, um, yeah, when you're in when you're in English, when, you, when you're a kid and you're, and you're learning about, or literature, I should say, when, and when you're learning about ways novels are constructed, usually you're given three classic conflicts, and it's man versus man, man versus self, and man versus nature. And what I find interesting about Frankenstein is that a lot of books spend a lot of time focusing on one of those and really trying to develop it. Um, in this instance, though, you really have all three to certain degrees. Yeah. And it, it mm. makes it really, really fun to read and it gives you the full gambit because you have Man versus Man, which is clearly the struggle between Banana Man and Victor. Um, then you have Man vs. Self, which is both the monster and Frankenstein, but I think it's more chiefly embodied by Frankenstein's struggle. Yeah. Because he is struggling with what he created and I mean, he the morality of Yeah, that. he literally bears the guilt yeah. of, of like, everybody who dies mm-hmm. by the yeah. hand of Banana Man. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then you, <laughs> and then you have Man vs. Nature in both a literal sense, because they are most of the time braving weird nature things like they're either in the north pole they're just going like frank uh the monster banana man uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could see the gears turning and you could see like where where i shifted to, into first for frankenstein shifted back into second for the monster and finally <laughs> shifted into third for banana man <laughs> banana man is the final gear yes. but <laughs> He's clearly struggling against nature, both his own nature and nature trying to just survive. And I, I don't know, for to, to to embody all three in a way that is still not overbearing to the reader and is still really fun to read is interesting. Because um, you can argue any one of them and you can argue any one of them succinctly and you wouldn't get an F on your paper. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no one could say you were wrong for saying any one of those. Whereas you look at something like, you look at like Count of Monte Cristo, which we've talked about, and we, we've already said is romantic literature, so let's mm-hmm. just stick with that. Man versus man. 100% man versus man. He is wronged, 
and he seeks revenge. And yes, there is. He does seek look inward and say, "Man, maybe what I'm doing is fucked up. I uh, maybe a I'm little. the asshole." I mean, not a little. That's what I'm saying. Not really. It's and then there's a little man versus nature, just because yeah. they're sailors and they're at sea. And but yeah, most of it's it. mostly man versus yeah. man. Yeah. And that's how that's how a lot of stories are. Let's talk about Crucible again. Man versus man. A hundred percent man versus man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's not about nature. It's not about. It's not about anyone looking inward at all. It's all about these people suck. Let's burn them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And the, the trial that goes along with it. Yeah. So most literature you look at can be boiled down succinctly into one primary conflict that the writer is trying to speak about. I think necessarily because Shelley wasn't really trying, didn't really have a, a big overarching meaning to the story. It was meant to be entertaining. It was meant to be a spooky story. But at the same time, have like some meaning that everyone can relate to. Was able to intertwine all three and it not come off ham-fisted, not come off cumbersome, and just still be really good and re- and speak to all three really well. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess that's the best way I would describe it. <laughs> yeah. So Frankenstein was first released in 1818, and with its second edition being published in 1823, both of which received much critical success like it it was almost a hit nearly instantly uh originally it was released anonymously Uh Mm -hmm. um it did not have shelly's name or uh, what's her actual name i feel like it's mary shelly wollenstoncraft wollenstoncraft okay but anyway she had a hyphenated uh, name because she was that oh that's what it was okay i thought i thought i thought mary shelly was solely a pen name no mary shelly is her name that she chooses to put on things it's technically her name but yeah it's technically mary shelley wollstone craft but anyway but initially published anonymously then in 1823 was published with her name but anyway so let's talk about 1818 for a second so the year that it was first published we're looking at a world that is not too far removed from the revolutionary struggles in both france and the united states which is a movement that kind of corresponded with the rise of Romanticism. Mm, I mean, you true. think about the ideals of Romanticism, yeah. and that falls very clearly in line with the the spirit of revolution and self-determination yeah. of a country. Mm-hmm. Um, the revolutionary spirit extolled virtues of the individual's ability to look inward, grasp at the emotional imperatives of freedom and a new way of life, and change the structure of, of man's governance in a way that prioritized the feelings of the many rather than the success of the few to the detriment of those under their rule. Uh, what followed, you get into the 1820s, towards when the next one came out, or when the next publishing came out. Mm-hmm. The 1820s, they were, a relative, they were an era of relative peace in Europe. But there was some bullshit lurking underneath that would come back to bite everybody in the ass, just like every time period ever. Right. Anytime you have relative peace... It doesn't stay peaceful yeah, for long. No, no. <laughs> we've been in war more than we've been at peace. Yeah, exactly. A, so you as never. As a society. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, across the Atlantic, the newly formed United States, they remained at war. They were still at war with the UK, kind of, kind of more through proxy war type stuff at this point. Like yeah. the UK was sponsoring Native American armies, the French were sponsoring various armies, stuff like that. So they were still at war with the United Kingdom and Native American tribes across the continent. Something that that Mary Shelley does allude to in the book is yes. the, the mm. mistreatment of the Native Americans. Yes. Uh, so they're very knowledgeable about that in Europe, even. They know what's going on right. in America. Yeah, we just didn't care um, because 
Fuck you, we yeah. have colonies to rule. We didn't need to... Well, also, colony. don't really care, because the slave trade was in practice on both continents. So we all still are, like, knee-deep in the worst thing that humanity does. You right. know what I mean? So the slave trade was in practice not abolished in the United Kingdom until 1833, and it would later become the defining issue that would lead to the brutal American Civil War and arguably one of the defining things of the 19th century. Yeah. Like the bloodiest war, one of the bloodiest wars of all time. Yeah. Fought over the South's peculiar, what do they call it? The peculiar, ende- I can't pronounce peculiar all of a sudden. Pecul- pe- peculiar. Endeavor. In- uh, I can't remember what they call over it. Over the South being racist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah, just their peculiar institution. That's what they call yeah. it. That's what the say, South gave their bullshit name to enslaving other say, people. I would say like the three big wars that define the 19th century, probably Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, Spanish-American War, yeah, probably definitely. are like the big ones. European colonialism was also ever-present. Like this, they, they do say that this area in the 19th century is when... Europe started going into Africa a little bit more, started doing True, a little yeah. more colonizing, uh-huh. didn't really ramp up until late 1800s. Right. That's when they really started going in, and that's when you started to see Africa being carved up by all the different well, European I'm pretty nations. sure yes. that was also during that, at least, not during the, 18, the early 1800s, but Victoria was yeah, on that's, the throne, yeah. so, you know, British colonies... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So colonialism brings with it its own injustices, which stood in staunch comparison to the lofty ideals that the revolution had brought about in like right. France yeah. and America. Yeah. And so Frankenstein really brings the struggle between man's potential, man's potential and his baser realities to the reader in a really vivid way that it's not unthinkable to believe that this is what led to a lot of its critical and commercial success. You know, if you buy a novel, you really want to see some truth in that novel. Just like right. like any story, you want to see a kernel of truth in it. So seeing, like, science advancing to the detriment of some other moralities, let's say, is pretty palpable yeah. at this time period, I think. And so, like, and yeah, the reader could see themselves in their respective country, the them having this undying thirst for knowledge and a better life, but also the horrors of an unrestrained struggle for science, for a better life, for freedom, for governance, for whatever, would undoubtedly lead to ruin, if not unchecked by, or if not checked by reason and morality. So... I don't know. That that was my take on it, and there is a little bit of projecting there, maybe for me. But that's kind of how no, I felt. I don't think that's projecting at all. I think I think it, it is. No, I don't think it is. Yeah, I think it is kind of. It is a little bit of a warning of like what ambitions can lead to, I guess. And and mm. you know, we actually see that in truth. Like me, I'm a huge World War One nerd, mm. uh, among other things. Among nerds of uh, uh, among a nerd of other things, but. Um, World War One was like that big. That's that was like the actual conflict that happened because of un, un, I guess, regulated ambition. You know, and that was the whole thing is that we stepped into World War One, like, kind of by accident, not realizing how serious a conflict it was going to be, thinking it was going to be over like in less than a year, and it ended up being 
uh, you know, a four years long. We thought it was going to be yeah. a, a first Gulf War, and it turned out to be <laughs> in Afghanistan. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it turned out to be a huge mire for everybody, yeah. and that's that sort of thing. Is that it, it was in a weird way? It is kind of a precursor to say that you know it, us to analyze our unchecked ambitions earlier in the 18th century, and then at the after the end of the or sorry the the earlier in the 19th century, and then after the 19th century, like right as the 20th century begins, realizing oh okay this is what happens if all of those ambitions are unchecked and the entire world has has realized its mistake too late mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i don't know i always like to tie things back to the first world war because no i mean the, the so first world war was was a breaking point in humanity uh and i think a lot of i, I mean I, I think a lot of people either look at the civil war or the first world war as one of those because uh, it's a con it, it was the colliding of technology and people that weren't ready to handle that technology that's one yes. thing historians yeah. always look uh-huh. at yeah and so definitely you can see that in frankenstein is like i said unchecked you know trying to get the best science the best technology the best weaponry the best everything is going to lead to some very negative consequences yeah um and yeah i mean it's not unthinkable to tie it to World War One. It's just ha- this just happened, you know, a century earlier. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about it as well, in the First World War, when they were doing like transplants, and they were they were literally sewing like other people's bodies onto like amputees yeah. to see if they could be able to like walk again. Yep. Yeah, they were trying some things because there were just so many people injured by that conflict. I mean, obviously there were a millions dead but there were millions more injured mm-hmm. by by Maimed. world war one that is, they were just is, yeah. yeah they were just trying to figure out ways of like okay how can we recycle some of these parts <laughs> because there's no way that we're going to be able to you know have enough material because there's so much material that's already being used up by the world we're not gonna have enough material to make prosthetics for these people you know it's like it's yeah we got to figure something out yeah i mean yeah and you have it's, to you and you have to wonder in any kind of horrific conflict like that i mean we know Frankenstein's super popular now. Like, how, you know, would, would they have thought about it at the same time? You know what I mean? Like, this is such an ever-present work. Right. They are trying... Possibly, I mean... They are trying to do, like, surgery it. and stuff like that, and, you know, it's like, oh, God, I feel like a modern Frankenstein right now. And it must be really demoralizing to a certain degree, because... I think there were a few Nazi doctors in the camps who'd, like, called themselves, like, modern-day Frankensteins Ugh. because of, like, the work that they were being told to do by, like, well, Mengele and such. Yeah, and that would have been World War Two, but yeah, that's... Yeah, but, but yeah. still, it's a, there's a very negative t- connotation to being like the doctor himself. Yeah, You know what I mean? True. That's true. And so, just... Why would you want to be that bitch? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There's a very... You know, we have we we have technology, we have science, but are we using it in the right way? Is I think what Frankenstein the novel kind of thrusts into people's For face sure, at yeah. probably some really yeah. weird times. So I don't think talking about World War One is kind of outside the realm of reality. No, definitely <laughs> not. Yeah, definitely <laughs> not. war in general in this. Yeah, game, for like, sure. In the, in the chaos, it still it still fits. Yeah, but anyway, but yeah, the 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 background of when it was written. And the style behind the way it was written, along with its simple style and its sensational subject matter, they have really led to the novel's like really big critical popularity. Like I said, it was a hit when it came out, and we always read about authors who have hits 
but they aren't hits until years later. Right. Like authors die penniless. Right. Authors don't like. I don't even was Poe even like Poe is another gothic writer. I don't even remember if Poe was really that popular when he was writing. He he was, but not in in the way he was in, in and now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I was trying to think of someone similar to Mary Shelley, but like regardless, a lot of authors don't get a lot of recognition at the time. See, but and we talked about this a little bit, but she definitely got more criticism after everybody realized. Yes. She was the one who wrote it. Like, after that 1823 publication. Yeah. yeah. And what I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's initial anonymous publication no doubt led to some mystery and speculation. Well, a lot of people thought it was Shet, thought it was Percy. That's true, yeah. 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 yeah, he did. Percy. I think and he claimed to have written it first, didn't yeah. he? Just to and save her. And they also still think it was him, po- you know, post the naming on the book because... Nobody believes the women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and that's Percy yeah, that's kind of gross. <laughs> I felt that too. That it, like in 1823, when it's released a second time, the revelation that it was a young woman who crafted the story of the ill-fated doctor, like new controversies arose, and like people praised her on one hand, and then other critics also decided to shit all over her because, oh, it's a woman. And I, I, I think I remember reading, there was one review of it that was like, we can overlook her delicate feminine sensibilities. <laughs> guffaw, guffaw. <laughs> and we can see a good story here, but, like, I can't remember how the review went exactly, but it was the most sexist bullshit you can think of. It's like, oh, it's a woman that wrote this, but I don't know. It might be worth your time if you are of the demeanor to read it. <laughs> like I don't know. Like <laughs> women, they can write. And I, but I, but I think that that, to a certain degree, I think to a layperson, that might also make it more popular. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because like I said, you have the anonymous publication that leads to some mystery. That is like, ooh, who the fuck wrote this? And some of the author or some of the reviews that came out were like, we really want to see more from this author. This was really good. Where where will they go from here? You know what I mean? And so it really built everybody up. And then when it comes out and it's like, oh shit, it's this like eighteen year old girl. Everyone's like, what? Yeah. And but and there's a certain amount of like a tabloid fascination then. Even yeah. if even if mm. the overarching society is fairly sexist and not really well, I it, think like a embracing lot of, of women. Yeah, I think a lot of the criticism was probably from like old fat nerds who wish they had wrote it. Um, True. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they're like, oh man, a girl wrote this. Damn, I wish I was that popular. But then, but you see that. All I ever write is about how women suck. You see that throughout <laughs> a lot of media is like the first woman to do something. Like a, women get shit on all over the place for doing something for a while. The but first then, woman too. But then, well, not even just the first woman too. But when a woman does something really well, even if the over the the society around that woman is overwhelmingly sexist. Like, most people come around and it's like, that shit was really cool. Like, why are we shitting on her specifically because she's a woman if she puts something of, of like, quality out into the world? Fuck you. Like, I'm think- I, I, I'm trying to think of specific examples. It's like, you know, um, Star Trek. Let's bring it back to Star Trek. You know, uh, what was the actress's name that played Uhura? Oh, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, Nichelle Nichols. Like, she was the first African-American woman on television, pretty much. You know what I mean? Or in a big, like, central role on television. And so, there are a lot of racists in this country, and there still are. 
But ever, but like and there are. <laughs> yeah. But everyone comes around. From our Get Out episode. Everyone comes around and says Star Trek is an awesome show. You don't hear a lot of racist shit pandering around Star Trek most of the time. Oh, I no. bet there is. Have there you is ever been some on of that. the fucking Star Trek forum? There, there I was is. about to say there probably is out there, but in 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 with outside the nerd the nerd space, outside the nerd space uh, and being in the know, as far as like in like the regular realm of just being a watcher of of TV, you're like, that was really cool. She's awesome. And I feel like there's a lot of, like, racist fucks that were even like, I love Star Trek. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, we're willing to say that this was awesome, regardless of whether or not she was a woman or what her race was or anything. And I just, I don't know. Just thought that was interesting. Yeah. So, speaking of science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Good segue. yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm pretty good. Uh, one of the most interesting accolades that Frankenstein often gets, and has been a bit of evidence against it, uh, is that many scholars consider it to be the earliest works of science fiction, uh, which we'll, we'll get into it. But uh, this is generally false in a traditional sense because there are many works, many, many, many works that came out before this that could be considered science fiction. Uh, New Atlantis uh, by Francis Bacon, written in 1627. Uh, Micromagus by Voltaire. Micromagus. Micromagus is what I said, but you heard. I, I I totally heard Micromagus, <laughs> yeah, and I'm just thinking of little micro machine cars going around like a tiny, <laughs> tiny Las Vegas. That's pretty sick. <laughs> uh, and, and that that was written in 1752, by the way. Uh, th- those would be considered earlier works of science fiction, and they definitely could be considered science fiction way before Frankenstein. And I, I really just don't get it. Uh, it's also arguable that Frankenstein itself itself is even a work of science fiction, uh, a topic which Isaac and I, when we were talking about this whole thing, uh, like debated heavily. And I think what we decided was, A, it was his popularity. Like, Frankenstein became such a popular book that it became associated with the rise of science fiction. And the reason it became the rise of science fiction, according to one another one of the reviews I read from the time, was that involved... Using unique or new technology or novel mm-hmm. technology to allow man to do something beyond the realm of what they were currently able to do in their time frame, in their in their current era. You know what I mean? That's a that's that is me paraphrasing. I would have to find the actual article, but it was use of new technology or fantastic technology. Because it is technology. We, we, we can argue. We don't know what it is that he uses in Frankenstein. Right. But he is mm. using some sort of technology to allow man to go beyond the bounds of medicine, science, and everything else that they understood at the time. Right. So in that, I think it's its popularity that led it to be called one of the first modern science fiction stories. Not necessarily that it was the first science fiction story. Yeah. Because I had never heard of the New Atlantis. I still don't know what it is. I mean... Right. You know what I mean? A New Atlantis is about a utopian society. Okay. Yeah. It's about a utopian society that has just a lot of technology. And Oracalcum. Huh? Oracalcum. Come on. The, the mysterious metal that fueled all of Atlantis for thousands yeah, okay. of years? <laughs> <laughs> fucking ancient aliens nerd. <laughs> that Jesus. was from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis on DOS, thank you. Oh, and okay. You, and I will thank you to recognize it as such. such. A extremely obscure <laughs> reference. Like, holy shit. 
Yeah. Nobody would have been able to figure that one out. <laughs> or Calcum Israel. It is what they actually considered non it, it was based, it, just like Raiders was based on, you know, the actual, like, Lost Ark. You know, Fate of Atlantis was LucasArts game, so they put a lot of real history and research into... I'll, I'll be quiet. So here's, here's one of the big things that Isaac and I were having the debate about. And the debate is that Frankenstein doesn't have any actual science in it. Yeah. It, only, it only has like brief mentions of galvanism in it, and but there's no actual, there's no explanation of the process. To a point, to a, a reason though, he does say why. He's like, because I won't allow anybody to endeavor to do what I created, which is an awesome cop out that fits with the story. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. And my whole thing is that there, to me, and this is going to sound a little sexual. To me, there is <laughs> oh. hard science fiction. And there's soft science fiction. And when I say hard science fiction, I'm talking about stuff that has hard science in it. And I would say, like, hard science fiction would be like Jurassic Park. Jurassic yeah. Park is hard science fiction because they explain very clearly how they did it. We did and, the dinos and, by this. Right. We took frog DNA to fill in the gaps of dino DNA and we made fake dinosaurs. That's Ar that's hard science fiction. Arthur, so Arthur C. Scott, Isaac Asimov, both also yes. really good examples of hard yeah. science fiction because Jules they talk. Verne. Yeah, Jules Verne. Jules Verne. H.G. Wells. Yeah, yeah, very detailed talking about the mechanism by which time travel or space <laughs> travel or whatever it is. Back to is the future. Able to, yes. <laughs> Flux capacitor, gigawatts. Boom. Okay, hard hard science fiction. That, one, that one's fuzzy science fiction, let's say. But basically, it, hard science fiction is what I would call stuff that actually has science behind it. Star Trek is also hard science fiction. Um, that you actually have some sort of explanation there. I would say Frankenstein falls in the same category as as a lot of other stuff that's that does not have hard science behind it. It's almost fantasy, but it's just enough like modern stuff in it to make it science in my opinion i almost call star wars kinda, soft. it's kind of like the thing or alien huh well yeah i almost think aliens hard science fiction just because of the detail of the way that it presents it even if it is mostly stylistic i would say i would say aliens hard science fiction i would say the thing is kind of soft science fiction yeah because we talked about that yeah, last time yeah. when we talked about alien too is that you know, it, it's more like if it wasn't an alien, it could just be a monster and be just as good of a story. Like, Correct. that's what we came up. So yeah. that one, yeah, it doesn't need to be science soft fiction. Science. Yeah, but I would say that's soft science fiction. I almost call soft science fiction, like I would consider Star Wars soft science fiction. Yes. Because yeah. it takes place in a galaxy far, far away. They don't have to explain anything to you. They don't have to explain the evolutionary process of Wookiees or Ewoks. They don't have to explain their gravitational drive or their warp right. drive or whatever. Yeah. They don't have to explain any it, of that because it, it, it happened works. out th It happened back it's there. there. So, <laughs> it happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, yeah. far away. We don't give but a they shit. They don't have to explain the fact that Jar Jar Binks exists. <laughs> they should have. <laughs> they at least explain that he's a race that belongs to Naboo. I mean, that's all you need to explain. Yeah. Just like Ewoks are from Endor. Like, that's all you need to know. What's the uh, name the of, of his... The forest moon of Endor. Thank True. You know. You're right. True. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, what is... What's the name of Jar Jar's race? I forget. Gungans. 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 That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, but... I'm actually Frankenstein, but instead of Frankenstein's... Instead of Banana Man, it's just Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> No, that's awful. <laughs> People would still run screaming when they saw him. Uh, oh, the, yeah. Just that CG in the 1800s, it would still be terrifying. Me, so uh -oh. gonna strangle you. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, 
But in the sense, uh, soft science fiction, soft science fiction is definitely uh, defined, in my opinion, by like not having to explain yourself. It's just, <laughs> I guess. It's yeah, just no, I would say I would say science, soft science fiction is the link between science fiction and fantasy. Yes, like soft science fiction, yeah. fiction is almost fantasy. Yes. That's how I would describe it. And I feel like Frankenstein and Star Wars, yeah, they fall in that sort of category where it's soft science fiction. There doesn't need to be explanation. It just works the way it is. And because Frankenstein is such a character story, it almost, to me, like, I, when I'm reading it, I don't read horror and I don't really read science fiction either. It does feel more fantastic, but it feels it feels more personal than even fantasy. I don't know. It just feels... It falls in that stupid category in the library that's just fiction. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really... The only horrific stuff that happens in the book is, like, when he sees the monster's face after he kills Elizabeth. And, like, those really... And when he sees him, like, creating the wife for him and stuff. Those are the parts that really instilled horror in me. The Mm. rest is very... Like I said, it's so emotional and it's so... Almost whimsical. Like, when he's talking about floating down the river and when he's talking about seeing Geneva and his eyes welling up with tears. Like, it just... It really speaks to me in a way that a horror story doesn't. I don't know, but that's just me. And a science fiction story, it doesn't even ring those bells, even remotely. (laughs) To me, at least. And I I would say, it's almost like, so we have psychological horror. It's almost psychological horror. I would say it's almost like emotional horror. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's what I would call it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but I, I would say, it, it, but it is gothic horror. Gothic, that's kind of what gothic horror is, though. It's kind of like emotional horror. True, yeah. Because you read Dracula, Dracula is kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, although Dracula is much more, what I believe it's called, epistolary format, where it's it's all like secondhand type stuff, kind of like, like Strange mm-hmm. Case, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Yeah. Hyde. It's a lot more secondhand than Frankenstein is. But for whatever reason, when, okay, so Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the one other book, actual book. We talked a lot about Dracula when we talked about Nosferatu. Right. But the only other book we really looked at in any detail was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. I definitely got a much stronger horror vibe from Dr. Jekyll for and sure. Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Also a little bit more of a science fiction-y vibe just because of all the hard science that they kind of alluded to. But, Didn't really explain, but alluded to. Yeah, but Dr. Jekyll and Mr. <laughs> Hyde was, one, written a lot later. True. After the, the genre was already more defined. Defined, correct. And, two, it was written by a nerd. So, <laughs> yeah, it was written by a huge fucking uh, dude. Yeah. Robert Louis Stevenson, huge nerd. Yeah. Huge, dead nerd. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, it, is, it is one of those things that I feel like Frankenstein is like that edging out of fantasy into science fiction like it's one of those Mm. that it came out of the fantasy realm into science fiction and it was kind of like i guess it was like the first time we really kind of saw science fiction like peer out into the light of day Mm -hmm. like for sure in a a modern sense i would say in in like a like in a postmodern society that frankenstein would be considered one of the earliest science fiction novels in a modern sense because when do we start considering science science i would say post-industrial revolution yeah. Um, which is like late 1800s. When was Isaac Newton? Do we know? Uh, when, I like I early remember. 1700s, like was, was it, Yeah, was it around that know. time? Because I'm no thinking clue. that's like I'm... that's like birth of modern science in my brain. That doesn't mean that it is. Don't anybody quote me on that. <laughs> I don't know things. But like, if you're talking about like early science, for whatever reason, Isaac Newton pops up to me. As the first time, science is really like science. Yeah, you yeah. Know? so early 1700s. Uh, yeah, he died in 1726 so, or 7. And I mean, Galileo before that, but that, that was Renaissance era. 
Yeah. But, I mean, still, but he was proven yeah, wrong. You, and can, looked, you could say Isaac Newton, like, modern science. I mean, he, in, in, you know, introduced the idea of, like, the prism and, like, light as as mm-hmm. a property and then, you know, gravity and calculus and all that but, sort of But stuff, as so. It's Always Sunny shows us, he also thought he could turn lead into gold and was proved a bitch. But, <laughs> um, but they, they are struggling with that in Frankenstein. They are struggling with old alchemists coming into the realm of science. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. And so maybe it's considered the first science fiction novel because it was written around the time when the first modern understanding of what science really could be is coming into view. That's possible. Yeah. Coming yeah. into view. And it's kind of the handing of the torch from the alchemist to the scientist. Yeah, because like I said, because yeah, yes. Isaac Newton had some really cool ideas, but yes, he he was very big into alchemy. He really did think there was a transmutation of chemicals that you could do to turn one element into another element, which we know now is impossible <laughs> otherwise, other, other than through like nuclear fission. Isn't that how you would have to break apart the molecules oh, of fuck an element. Oh, I know. I am the wrong person to ask. Yeah, so, uh, I don't know, so maybe science, that's what it is. There's Me dumb science bitch. <laughs> that's all I'm saying is maybe it's because of Shelley's focus on the science of the time and its clash with previous scientific-ish things. And that dynamic that makes it considered to be science fiction. Yeah. That's about maybe. maybe the best reason that I could come to for, for it having the accolade of being for a science fiction right. novel. Uh, so, with a property as old and as popular as Frankenstein, there, of course, tends to be a long string of adaptions that Boo. follow along. <laughs> oh, <Boo>. <laughs> <laughs> So the first known adaption of the book was a play called uh, Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. And that came was, out like the year that it was published the second time, yes, right? Yes, it, it was, was like released in year. 1823, yes. And, and this is an adaption that Shelley and her father, William Godwin, actually saw. Um, this was also the adaption that introduced Frankenstein's assistant named Fritz, just like in the 1931 adaption. Um mm. Another play adaption in 1826 and a musical burlesque oh my God, <laughs> called Frankenstein I want or to, the Vampires. I want to be in a burlesque version of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, Revitalize was, that shit. Get down to the Shakespeare Theater. Get down to the Globe and, and put that shit on. You, you are in the heart of, of, of the drama. Do it. Uh, yeah. And, and so this musical burlesque was called Frankenstein or the Vampire's Victim. Which uh, makes no sense. Which was uh, released in 1887. Uh, and those are the the most notable adaptions in between the film era and the play era of Frankenstein adaptions. Yeah. So the first film adaption was the Edison Studios version in 1910. And this, this one, this version you can watch... On the Wikipedia page for it. It's very easy to attain. It's very easy to watch. It's only 14 minutes long, but that began a long string of film adaptions of the novel. The most famous film adaption, of course, is a 1931 adaption by Universal Studios. And My big question, really quick, before we go on. Who was the Edison one? Who did he make that for? Was it just to show off his technology? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Was that what it was? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if he actually put it into movie houses like it was like a real big fucking cinematic to do or whether it was just he liked the book because he's Edison and that it makes a lot of sense that Edison would <clears throat> have have some feeling towards the book. And if it was just him to show off like his ability to, to do a movie picture moving picture rather. more than likely it was just like what's a popular story i can make easily okay 
But I'm because, a nerd. What can I do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Because that was all Edison Studios was really for, was to show off technology of, like, cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, it's, you know, it's not widely regarded as an incredibly popular adaptation. Oh, yeah, no, no, I mean, I wasn't know? trying to shit on it or anything, because yeah. it is interesting, and and we watched it, and it does take a lot that Nosferatu did, uh, where, like, the mm. different camera, like, the different lenses with, like, the blue, like, everything was blue, and then everything was, like, sepia tone, and then everything yeah. was, like... it would have been before Nosferatu, but, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. what I'm saying is, yeah. it, it just it kind of uses the same thing of like colored filters to instill some sort of emotion or time yeah. of day or whatever. So it's still, I mean, it, it has a lot of those same early silent film traits that are interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, but yeah, it just didn't have a lot of substance to it. I, I don't know. I just feel like the writing was poor, the acting was <laughs> choppy, just, just, just there wasn't any sense of direction. And like I saw I saw the mic coming down in like at huh? least two of the shots. So I, I don't know. They wouldn't have had a mic. It's a it's a silent film, Isaac. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, yeah. First before we start discussing uh, the Universal movie, shout out to James Whale for being an openly gay man. I think he was... Well, he, he was and wasn't open. But yeah, a gay man directed Frankenstein huh. and The Bride of Frankenstein. And yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Fun fair. <laughs> so let's... Who'd have thought the, the gay knows all the, all the secret gays? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. There is a we live in a society. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can't. That can't be the punchline to every joke. <laughs> it can be in this episode. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the Universal one because obviously that's one of the, if not the most popular adaption of Frankenstein. Um, I think so what I want to talk about first. What, what did you want to talk about first? Because I because just like when it was released when the book was released, kind of wanted to look at the era in which the movie was released. Yes, because that's an important mm. thing to understand. So this is going to be like a mini episode within the episode. <laughs> it's going to be a frame narrative. Yeah. And the, <laughs> this is an episode within an episode. We're going to talk about the 1931. So let's talk about the beginning. Let's talk about the era of 1931 and like why this movie was the way it was. So, I mean, obviously mm. 1931, the Great Depression started in 1929. Mm-hmm. So this is two years into the Great Depression. It's near the height of the Depression, which many people consider to be 1933. Um, people just wanted to be entertained. They wanted to forget everything about the the the, the problems that they were having at home, the mon- money problems they were definitely having. Uh, all the, you know, the yeah. Dust Bowl happened not, you know, not soon, like pretty soon after this. Um, so they're, they're just trying to get a piece of entertainment and that's all they want. They don't want, they want They don't want a depressing story like Frankenstein. (laughs) They want, they want a different version. They want somebody just, they want a monster movie. Looking inwardly at your own flaws and insecurities and the fear that you feel over technology and the advancement of humanity is not something palpable when you have no fucking money, no fucking crops, and the only place that does have money is, is California. <laughs> and right. you're just like, God damn it. Yeah, yeah. this is like, because also after World War One, this is, you know, inner, inner war period where yep. World War One destroyed people, like, psychologically and, mm-hmm. and, like, how they understand the world. Because, you know, it... Sorry to talk about World War One again, but no, it's just I mean, like, no, it's super important. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you talk yeah, about the depression, and I mean, it's way more. It was way more palpable, obviously, in Europe. 
So I don't know if this movie was saw in Europe. I don't know if they even gave a shit about movies in Europe after World War One. You know what I mean? Yeah. World War One was so devastating that I can't imagine anything lifting their spirits to to any degree. We in America had a very much different experience with World War One. In just an entire generation of our young men were gone, just like in Europe. But yeah. just, but we didn't see any of the actual conflict that took them from us. Right. You know what I mean? So we were very disconnected, and then boom, economy fails. And yeah. so we have no idea what the exactly. fuck is going on. So we're all, as a society, depressed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying society just to, <laughs> just to make Chrissy laugh, because I think it's funny. Um, but yeah, it, it, we... You know, as a whole, we just we just want to be entertained, and that's mm. basically what Frankenstein is the the 1931 version, and it was actually adapted from a play that was an adaptation of Frankenstein. So it actually takes a lot from the play that came before, um, and that's why it kind of feels like a play. Mm-hmm. As um, a lot of early Hollywood, yeah, movies. yeah, a lot of yeah, a lot of obviously much of early mm-hmm. cinema. Basically, up until the 30s, and they started making bigger films, uh, was it felt like very much like a play. Like there were sets, and they were very obviously sets. And the acting was much more stilted. The acting was very much more ah drama. Very <laughs> theatrical. Yes, exactly. That's the word I was yes. looking for. I did uh, not be calculon for a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they changed a lot of things with the story. Uh, you know. It, it's first of all he has an assistant. His name's Fritz. Uh, the they the, is there an Elizabeth? There's an Elizabeth, right? Isn't there an Elizabeth? But I don't I don't remember if yeah it, yeah. But if she she's his, she's not his, his she's wife. Is she his wife? Yeah. She she's like I thought she was his sister. I think he is his, it's his, his wife. sister. Is, is it, it okay. his wife? Okay. They yeah, just okay. didn't fuck at all in the movie, so right. I was confused. <laughs> Anytime anybody it's doesn't the, fuck in a movie, I assume they siblings. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where they, okay, so the monster is not coherent. The monster's dumb. Obviously portrayed by Boris Karloff. If you don't know that, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> um, and, and he has a he, he, great makeup for the time. It looks amazing for 1931. Yeah, there's a reason why that oh, and it version... Was that- the makeup was Jack something who did loads of other makeup on big scary movies. Was it Jack Skellington? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember his last name. I just know it was Jack. I feel really bad. Um, yeah, well, I'll look it up here but real quick. What I was going to say is, while he's looking it up, I was just going to say that there's a reason why the Frankenstein monster banana man that you see in this movie is a reason why this version of it is what you see from forever past this is because Boris Karloff's portrayal of it and the makeup job that was done on it is so mm. iconic and looks so good um, I love that him Jack, it, Jack Pierce yes that's, that's the lad but yeah. it looks so good and it's so it's so immediately recognizable that Fra- Frankenstein's monster has never, <laughs> yes, Banana Man, uh, has never been different ever again. This is the only thing that anybody has envisioned him as, other than weird Robert De Niro. And I don't know why they did Ooh, it that Christopher way. Lee. Christopher Lee played a Frankenstein monster. Yeah. A Banana that's Man. That's true. A Banana Man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, he, although, he played both the Doctor, he played both Dr. Frankenstein and Banana and the Man. Oh, and really? Oh, okay, wow. He played both. <laughs> Jeez. With Peter Cushing playing the other role 
in the, both films. Yeah. I've Weird. watched a lot of these Hammer ones, which we yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, discuss. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the, the Hammer ones, of course. But um, So th- this one, it like we said, it's just supposed to be a monster movie. Monster dies at the end, he gets burned up in a mill. Um, the only the only theme I could really come from, it almost felt like a Cold War film if it were made during the Cold War, because it's about scapegoating, it's about fear, it's about, yes. you know what I mean, like uh, War of the Worlds type, type, type of feeling to it. But it wasn't made during that era. So I, I don't know what the, the purpose was other than entertainment. Yeah. Because the, the message is, hate what you don't understand, burn it, please. That, yeah, that's yeah. that's what I got from it. Basically. <laughs> and I think it, it's because of the simplicity of the story is why it was so popular is because mm-hmm. it's like a complete re-envisioning. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this was a time that people watched movies a lot because they had nothing else to do. They couldn't afford anything else. Yeah. They just went to go watch movies. Like that's why Gone with the Wind was so popular because it came out at the same time. Um, oh, yeah, God, did it really? Yeah, it was, was, up, it was later, but yeah, it was definitely oh like roughly, you know, in that era of the Depression, and people Damn. wanted to watch movies and forget about everything. Yeah. So Gone with the Wind was the same same type of time period. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just that that. That's just all they wanted to do. They just wanted to forget about everything. Let's just watch a monster die, <laughs> yeah. And and let's just leave it at that. And there, yeah, there aren't really a whole lot of themes in it because it is, you know, and we don't want to be little there because it is a cinema classic, but it it is a shallow film comparatively. When we all the things that we talk, I preferred the bride. Yeah, and people largely regard that as the one of the best sequels of all time, and we'll talk about that in just a second. We'll, we'll briefly mention it in just a second. But, um, yeah, it's it, the film itself is rather rather shallow, but because it doesn't need to be deep uh, because of the time. And it's very much a product of the time, and that's basically what we're trying to say, is that it's, it's the way it is because of the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm even trying to remember much about Frankenstein, or, the, yeah, Frankenstein's struggle throughout because I remember the It's Alive moment. It's such an iconic piece of cinema history. The It's Alive! Just that whole sequence. I don't really remember what he does throughout the rest of the movie, though. Most of the, A lot of it focuses on the monster t- stumbling around, trying to save a kid, being pissed off, drop-kicking her into a lake, and then <laughs> getting burned up at the end. Is it him trying to track down the monster? He, he mostly just postures and is dick science man. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't remember him having a real arc or anything other than, oh, the, the mon- we got the monster at the you, end, you know, I'm injured, and then his dad smokes a cigar, and like, oh, everything is fine now, I oh, will yeah. take his whiskey. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's really dad. stupid. The ending, is, ending makes me so mad of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, real quick, fame moments, final thoughts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> My favorite moment is uh, It's Alive. That's that's the only the only moment that has like any humanity to it to me kind of feels like when he does meet that kid. Yeah, but he gets pissed. Off. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? Isn't that what happens? Doesn't he throw her into the no, lake? No, no, no. He's like playing with her. Yeah, and it, he does that by accident. I think. Oh, he does it by is. accident. Is I it, thought he's is that, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I, yeah he basically accidentally kills. I like him. that scene because it feels like that's the one scene where they they try to allude to Banana Man's humanity <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate it. Every time we say it, it just gets funnier to me. Because uh, you see the face and you're like, that's Banana Man. You're like, that's, oh no. Well, the thing is, Banana Man is more... <laughs> you, you kind of feel for him more in this adaption because he's not, like, he can't, like, 
speak. He doesn't have any like strong. He's thoughts. like a child. He's yeah. like a child. And I mean, it happens basically. If if the part in the cottage from the book didn't happen, I mean, that's who he he would be. So it's kind of like yeah. they cut out that part of the book, right? And everything else happens about exactly the same. Kind you know of, what I mean? Yeah. And Except he, there's no North Pole. Well, he, I mean, it still it still leads to a mortal struggle between Frankenstein and the Beast. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. But then Frankenstein lives at the end, unlike in the book. Yeah. Frankenstein is the first to expire in the book, and this one it is Banana <clears throat> Man that expires, and that really does leave you with a very different moral feeling at the end than the than the book does true and i like we said i think it is because of the time and the way that they wanted to feel about I don't a know. monster both of them make me feel bad for the monster oh yeah of course sorry banana man <laughs> <laughs> i i still feel bad for banana man in both mm-hmm. like yeah, i, I feel more bad for him in the universal one though. yes I would 100% yeah. agree. And I think maybe that's partially also why it's pretty popular, uh, is just because the monster's more sympathetic, and you feel bad. Like, it's kind of one of those, like, society sucks. So, I don't know. So you think it maybe boiled down the core concept a little bit more, just without all the talkie? <laughs> do you think Do you think that maybe that was, it, was its point, is this is an inherently sympathetic creature that no one understands, and that doesn't have the opportunity to bring himself to to make anyone understand him and a man who creates it and immediately thrusts off all responsibility for it we are still looking at technically the same story just executed in a much different way but without a, a, like giving banana man any of the malice that he holds in the yeah, book i do think yeah. they use less word make more heartful uh, <laughs> and and that that helps that they simplify the story to make it more sympathetic to to the monster because i mean kind of you know in in the book you kind of don't feel like you feel for both of them but you also don't feel for both of them you know what i mean like do you know what i'm saying i think i think there's 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 more room for choosing who you identify with in the book than there is in the movie true and it's a little bit more ambiguous yeah yeah but I feel like it's more geared towards being sympathetic for the monster in the movie, yeah. in the Universal adaption. Yeah. But uh, anyway, what followed the Universal adaption was a torrent of more Universal adaptions. Um, and this wasn't of just Frankenstein. It was also of a whole bunch of other films that we know and love. Dracula, of course. Uh, well, Dracula actually came out the same year, I think, as as, the, yeah. as Frankenstein. But uh, Wolfman, The Mummy, and, you know, all the classic ones that we know. The, the, the Invisible Creature Man, from the Black, Creature of the Black Lagoon. Uh, cre- creature from mummy. the Black Lagoon. Did you already yeah. say Mummy? I don't remember. Yeah, Invisible I did too. Man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this uh, one of the films, of course, included was uh, what is widely regarded as best sequels in film history, The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, Universal also created a series of monster mashup movies that teamed Frankenstein's monster up with the likes of Dracula, Wolfman, and other such popular monsters. Um, after the golden age of cinema passed, though, the era of the Hammer film adaptions began. And this was about 50... Yeah. Was it 51, I believe, was the first Hammer film? I think. Um, I think. And... I believe so. Uh, this era, my, my memory of Hammer is not as good as it should have been. <laughs> well, after the, um, the, the this era of the Hammer films uh, included entries such as Curse of Frankenstein, Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, and Frankenstein in the Monster from Hell. 
I think it also <laughs> included Son of Frankenstein, or that might have been a Universal one. I don't remember. One of, one of the two had Son of Frankenstein. Oh, and also a little tidbit, in this same era of Hammer films, Toho created two, actually three, two... I think it was two uh, Frankenstein films. Toho, the Godzilla Company. I was Toho. I was about to ask you if, yes. they, if they ever did like oh, yeah. a Godzilla versus Frankenstein. Yes, they did. Because <laughs> it sounds like that is right up their alley. So they did. <laughs> yeah, that sounds exactly. So Godzilla versus King Kong was supposed to be Godzilla versus Frankenstein or Frankenstein's huh. monster. Um, and oh my uh, god, and and that's why. In Godzilla versus King Kong, God, uh, King Kong like is revitalized by electricity. Huh. It's because he was supposed to be Franken- a, Frank- a big Frankenstein monster, huh. like a real a kaiju-sized Frankenstein monster. Uh, but then they changed That'd it. That would be so cool. But they, they they changed it to Godzilla versus King Kong. But yeah, it makes was- sense because I mean King Kong's the only American kaiju. You know, I mean why why change it to Frankenstein who's not a kaiju? He's a monster. He is a, a tiny monster. Right. And yeah, I I don't know. Also, that, I think Kong was more popular than Frankenstein at that moment. Probably, yeah. Um, hmm. But yeah, I mean, Toho also just created Frankenstein monsters films, and they did a uh, War of the Gargantuans, which was technically like Frankenstein monster, like big kaiju Frankenstein monsters. I I don't know. It's weird that whole, whole Toho thing. Really strange. Have you seen any of them, or do you just know mm. about them? I know I've seen Godzilla vs. King Kong. Well, yeah, yeah, but I haven't seen any of the any other of the ones, fra- no. like uh, standalone Frankenstein's monster stuff. Yeah, and that I, must be a trip. Like I don't even know. Yeah, it's, Toho's already a crazy company. It, it, I, it is a trip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a trip. Um, but so back to the Hammer films. I actually haven't seen any of the Hammer films of any series, which may be kind of surprising considering, like you know, all the knowledge that we already have. I haven't either. Give me a rundown of what you mean when you say Hammer films. Is this is a production company. This is a production company. Yeah, they're a British production okay, company. Gotcha. Okay, They they did you know the the famous Christopher Lee adaptation of Dracula and like the Brides of Dracula. I think was one. Okay. Of them. There was a lot of films. Mm, most of them were terrible. They—they—they <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, they were the fifties British Blumhouse. Oh, okay. Yes. That gives me, that gives me good. That's a really reference. good. That's a really good way yeah. of putting it. Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those, and honestly, like like I said, to date, I have now seen one one and a half Frankenstein movies. You, you, you may you may have actually seen at least one Hammer horror movie. Because the most recent Hammer horror movie, because they kind of came back, was that adaptation of The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, oh yeah. yeah okay, that. yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah that, was a, that was a Hammer movie. Okay, yeah, huh, I, I did see The Woman in Black. That yeah. was really boring. Yes. It was like one of the most... Yeah. All the lists I read was like, this is one of the best horror movies of modern age. I'm like, this is so fucking slow. When that movie, yeah, when that movie ended, I was literally like, oh, that's the end? Oh, okay, oh, fine. I mean, it does, it works better as a play. It is not a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, so Hammer, <laughs> Hammer was a production company. Hammer got a whole bunch of licensing, essentially, rights in the 50s. Uh, for a lot of these universal monsters, and we're, it was like, okay, we're gonna go fucking ham, and we're gonna make uh, all of these movies. They made a ton of movies in this era, like about fifty-one yeah. to seventy-three. They made a ton of movies. Oh. Um, it's it's impossible to not at least find like one bargain bin hammer horror film just sitting around anywhere. Even oh. when, we, when we were just at Recycle, we saw one. We saw, I think it was. Um, the Curse of Dracula or something. We we saw a Hammer film. Yeah. When we were there. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. Remember, yeah, you pointed it out. Yeah. 
And and they're they're really easy to find. But yeah, they basically created a hammer horror cinematic universe. Uh, <laughs> okay. Pre-Marvel. Pre-Marvel. Really, really quick, kind of a side tangent. Was Frankenstein ever, like, a property? Were the, was Frankenstein a property of Universal? Was it, like, copyrighted? Because, I mean, the version, 1818 the version to of now, Frankenstein, The version of Frankenstein that we know in the Universal film was basically a property. Oh, yes. like, so the image yeah. yes. of the monster. Yes. I got you. Yes. Okay. But, like, the story itself, because, I mean, I don't know when public domain laws came into effect, but it's just, like, it feels like it could never be copyrighted by anybody because it's so old. Yeah, if other anything, than the Shelley it would have been, estate. Yeah, other yeah, other than the Shelley estate, that's the only people who could really own it. I yeah. would say, unless you bought it. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Weird. And, okay, that like I said, side tangent. Wondering about how copyrights work. No, I think I think basically <laughs> by the time the Universal one was made, that it was basically public domain. Uh, it was like mm. there was nobody really owned the rights to it. It just kind of like happened because it was like we said it wasn't in and you know it wasn't in the forefront of people's minds as far as property is concerned mm-hmm. so they were just kind of like yeah we'll do whatever with it and yeah. then when the universal one came out everybody's like okay maybe we should buy this that guy. yeah you know maybe true. we yeah. should maybe we should make this into something um and thus the hammer films kind of came out as like kind of like an exploitation of every single monster that mm. has ever been created. Gotcha. And there's there's a ton of Hammer films. Like uh, it's, that's just like a whole like bulk. If there was like ever a collection of Hammer films, it would fill like, so many shelves. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, the like the box sets, the Hammer box sets you can get. Boy, they are they're big. Yeah, they're huge. Because like yeah, I mean, it, just like even just the films in within one like regarding one monster. Are huge, yeah, like because like the, the amount of Dracula fucking things they made. Yeah, like the amount of Frankenstein movies. I think there's like <laughs> nine or ten of just Frankenstein related stuff. It's <laughs> there's count. so much. Well, okay, so and give me a primer on because I haven't seen it. Give me a primer on Bride of Frankenstein. I know that's not necessarily a Hammer film, but that's one I haven't seen, and you're saying it's one of the best sequels of all time. I, I want kind of an insight. <laughs> On how they were able to build off of the original story. Chrissy? Yeah, help me a little bit. Yeah, Chrissy, you're probably the best one for this. Yeah, I mean, I do love The Bride. So it starts sort of where the first movie ends, but it turns out good old Frankie boy has survived. Banana Man. Banana Man. Banana Man has survived. It's somehow. He just... He's now a roasted... Plot armor. Plot armor, <laughs> he survived. And so Victor goes about his life doing stuff, and he's he comes into contact with a doctor. Okay. Um, I have to remember his name. <laughs> uh, Dr. Wiley. <laughs> Do- Dr. Eggman. <laughs> Dr. Robotnik. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> no, oh god, this is this is so, so terrible. I am he meets awful. another doctor, go. Yeah, his, he meets another doctor. <laughs> he meets Sanguinaire. I cannot remember his last name, but his name is Sanguinaire. And it's okay. great. I love it. And he's like, hey, I've done all these creepy experiments too. And the doctor's like, no, I don't want to do it. Do it. Frank sounds like, no, I don't need this anymore. Please, no. And then he he kind of gaslights him into creating 
a female monster, because this will be better if he does it with women. It won't go wrong. And all while this, <laughs> Frankenstein's befriending a blind man in a cottage who's teaching him to talk. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, it's, oh, so, so Banana Man is, is going through the cottage portion of the book in the sequel, similar to how in Godfather Part 2, they're doing the background of Vito Corleone. Yes. In, in yeah. 2, like they, like, instead of in 1, like, when, like the way the book was written. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then th- some things happen. The Frankenstein and Banana Man kind of see each other again. And then... Banana Man kills Frankenstein himself, the bride, and sort of everyone by <laughs> electrocuting them all because he's like, no, we should be dead. Huh. D- stop. And also, and that's only because the bride rejects him. Yeah. Which they talk about in the book. Okay. I, ca- I kind of wanted that, that little synopsis just to see how you build off of the original narrative and make, because you say there's nine Frankenstein films from Hammer. Yeah. How can you the, pull the, the plot six. out that far? Oh, six. Okay. Uh, I just looked up there was, there was okay. six. But still, it like I was like nine. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering how you pull the plot out that far because Frank the the novel's fairly simple. So I kind of wanted the, the the best sequel to be like the litmus test of how you oh. expand the story. No. I realized I just got the doctor's name completely wrong. I've confused him with with Polidori from Frankenhole. His <laughs> name is Septimus Pretorius. Where I got Septimus Sanguinaire. Oh, okay. It's okay. He's <laughs> fine. Polidori's a better character than Pretorius, anyway. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to start getting into some more contemporary adaptions. And unfortunately, this means we need to talk about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1994. <laughs> were, were there others before this, though? Can we talk about anything but this first? <laughs> Not anything significant. Okay. Let me let me put it that way. There's nothing significant okay. between the end of the, the the Hammer films and now. I mean, there there's nothing really in the '80s that's worth really talking about, other than Young Frankenstein, which we'll get into. Okay. We'll get into. Gotcha. But um, mm. that's that's when we were going to get into adaptions that are not strictly you know based on the story. Let's dramatic. See. Dramatic. Dramatic adaptions. Let's yeah. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Yes. Um. I'm not sure what kind of power trip Kenneth Branagh was on. <laughs> um, it's Kenneth Branagh. Are you, like, surprised? I am. I don't know she, who he is. <laughs> he acted and directed in this thing. Um, yes, there are some things that are fairly close to the original novel, which is refreshing after a long string of adaptions that just generally ignore all of the novel's main precepts. However, so many things are changed for no apparent reason. <laughs> and there's just too many scenes of Kenneth Branagh with no shirt on. <laughs> like uh, that honestly sounds about is right. Is that on brand? <laughs> like put a damn shirt on. Man. <laughs> also, Helena Bottom Carter is in it, which I think says enough. You can I mean, you can infer anything from Helena Bottom Carter being in something. Johnny Depp's butchery assistant. <laughs> <laughs> For you, Isaac, you. You've seen The Road to El Dorado, right? Yes. Kenneth Branagh is the voice of Miguel. Oh. There you go. Okay. It's that guy. Weird. Okay. I haven't seen it enough to know what the connotations behind that is, but... <laughs> let, let me just say that uh, Isaac and I have this movie, 
1994 Mary Shelley's Frankenstein on Laserdisc. Uh, we only got through sides one and two out of four. Out of four and then sides. We were just like, <laughs> on Laserdisc. <laughs> <laughs> it was in that collection that we bought that just had a whole bunch of stuff in it. And it just, we could only get through the first yeah. two sides, the first disc, let's say. And then we were just like, no. <laughs> no, we're done. <laughs> now, the, the thing is, there's a lot of things that are the same as the book, strangely enough. Like a lot of that whole cottage scene with, with Banana Man uh, is still <laughs> pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> the whole cottage scene is pretty damn close as far as the book is concerned. But a lot of the things that are just changed for no fucking reason. Um, and with De Niro as as Banana Man, you, it's, it's hard to take seriously. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> that also gives it another weird tie-in with Godfather. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, mm. but anyway, since that one, there have been relatively few solid adaptions. Um, there was a manga, a manga adaption by Junji Ito, which we did talk briefly about in the Junji Ito episode. And Chrissy, I think you read that one, right? The Frankenstein yeah. adaption? Yeah, it was basically just a straight-up, like... It was just retelling of the story, but with Junji Ito being Junji Ito. Yeah. What did they make Banana Man look like in that? Did he look more like the Universal Monster? Did they get he put his own spin on it? Like He he was kinda pretty. I kinda hated <laughs> it. Because he was huh, kinda cute. Interesting. Like Joe like Jonathan yeah, Joestar but, cute? Like what are we talking about? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, I mean it's weird to say that Junji Ito's style is inherently cute. I will say that that is a strange statement mm. you just made because I, I find it terrifying. I don't know <laughs> why you think he's cute, um, but I mean that's your thing, I guess. Uh, I mean, I've seen he just looks like, kind of pop. He looks in half the people that I like. Uh, I mean, you like what do you what you like? Okay, yeah. let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't change what you like, but. Um, Sorry, Stephen. Um, <laughs> um, but we should talk about. So let's talk about the non-dramatic adaptions of Frankenstein. Let's talk about. Let's talk about Frank and all. Let's talk about Young Frankenstein. Let's talk about the other stuff. So I, yeah. I'm going to let you start with this, Chrissy. Like, what? What is it for? Because this is kind of the topic you wanted to bring up. So what? Do, what do you want to start with here? I guess we should start with Young Frankenstein because yeah. it's a Frankenhole's a very niche and contemporary show. one. So, yeah. Young Frankenstein was what seventies, eighties? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Yeah, eighties. Yeah, eighties. Mel Brooks being Mel Brooks at his finest yeah. for sure. For definitely making because I mean we all know how I mean a lot of people have seen mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles or seen Spaceballs. Mel Brooks or all the producers. A lot of people have... Mel Brooks takes something that's popular at the time, like a popular IP, or a, just a popular genre, and for this he was like, oh, horror, let's make this, uh, you know, an idea about a descendant of Frankenstein. Young, young Frankenstein was actually 1974, it, by the way. 1974. So okay. it's, yeah. Oh, was it? Same year hmm. as uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> I feel like what I like about Young uh, Young Frankenstein is it really popularizes Igor more than any of the other ones did. Because, like we said, that Fritz oh, yeah. is uh, originally his assistant. It, over time, changes to Igor. I don't think we ever pinned down where exactly it changed to Igor. Yeah, I don't know. But that is what you see most often yeah. is the mad scientist's, like, 
apprentice in a lot of you know cartoon spoofs or a lot of other later spoofs is Igor, fetch me the blah, and he's like, hey, yes, master. <laughs> and Marty Feldman is absolutely. Oh, I love his eyes. Uh, like he just has the bug eyes, and he, they just like go dart every which way oh, like the great. chameleons. It's amazing. <laughs> and I like how he insists on being called mm. Igor because. <laughs> Frank Frankenstein keeps saying yeah. it's Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm. and that is Gene Wilder, right? I'm not. Yes. I'm not. I yeah. was make, make sure totally. I wasn't like yeah. crazy. I'm totally, like, <laughs> absolutely, Gene Wilder. Yeah, no, yes. one of his best. I oh, love yeah. Gene Wilder so much. Oh yeah, he's great. It's 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 Gene Wilder pissing all over it. It's Gene Wilder. <laughs> yeah, not in a yeah. bad way, because because Wilder who was a brilliant comedic talent. Oh yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Young Frankenstein's one of those. I mean, probably my favorite like weird Hollywood adaption of Frankenstein at all. Oh, it's great. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's the one I identify most with because it was funny. I saw it as a child, and like that's. I mean, most of most of the other ones are kind of boring or just or not good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean. Yes. The book is way better than yeah. everything else except Young Frankenstein. Like, I would probably watch Young Frankenstein more than I would read the book again. Obviously. Because I don't read. Because yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lazy bitch. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, in movies just inherently have more uh, replayability, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, uh, you know, in the sense of, like, they're easy to consume. They don't have to take up multiple yeah, days. Yeah, uh, to consume, let's put it that way. Mm. You know, it's beamed directly into your eyeballs, <laughs> uh, and that helps. Unless you're listening to an audiobook like I did for this. Uh, I, I listened to Frankenstein as as an audiobook, and that made it really easy to consume. Yeah. So, uh, if you if you have trouble reading yeah. like I do, use audiobooks. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen like, Young Frankenstein, but I remember enjoying it a lot. Because um, I, I remember just like, this is... Because I, I was pretty into Frankenstein at that point, as, like, as far as the story was concerned. I was like, this is great, because actually, there's some stuff that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, True, yeah. Um, there's some stuff mm. that's correct. I mean, he still he, he still meets the blind man, right? Uh, he still meets the blind yeah. man. He still, like, has that whole... And the young girl. And the young girl. And he has that whole experience, and that's still, you know, right on, you know? Um, there's just a lot of stuff that's not, you know? And, but, that, <laughs> but that's the funny shit. It's Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and I don't know. It's just really good. If you haven't seen Young Frankenstein, definitely watch it. Young it's, Frankenstein's a trip. It's a really good yeah. movie. Um, so let's talk about some other stuff. I mean, Frankenhole. Do you want to talk about Frankenhole right now? Or is there or, something else you yeah. want to talk about? Yeah, because Frankenhole's the only other thing that I definitely have, like, an idea. Like, <laughs> a lot to say about. <laughs> okay. So, for Adult Swim, back in, like, I think it was, like, 2000-something, like, in the 2010s, I'm pretty sure it was, there was a show called The Frankenhole, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenhole. Stop motion animation created by uh, Dino Samatopoulos. I said his name the first time right. Oh my god, I'm so happy. <laughs> I literally was listening on how to say it earlier. Um, it was 2010, by the way. Yeah. Yes. And basically... Frankenstein is now immortal, and he's a dick. Like, he's a proper dick. (laughs) And he's just created an infinite number of wormholes that mean people can come visit him and have their problems solved by him. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. Sounds that, amazing. That, that, this sounds like... What, it's brilliant. What was the the Wayback Machine with the dog and the kid from Rocky and Bowinkle? Do you know what I'm talking oh. about? Yeah. Like where they went through time um, and solved history's mysteries or whatever. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Oh I don't my god, that's what this reminds me of so far. Keep going, please. <laughs> <laughs> so Frankenstein's wife is 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 also immortal. Elizabeth's in it. She's immortal. She's having an affair with Dracula because <laughs> basically Frankenstein's too much of a dick, and he can't. He basically shoots his dick off a lot in the series. Um, yeah, that happens. Dracula's a dick. The creature is, like, depressing. And he's like, oh, woe is me. And he's an alcoholic. Igor has a childish voice and is adorable and I love him. You've got Michael Jackson's son, Blanket, who tries to bring oh, back Michael Jackson no. and also infuses his bones with the bones of the Elephant Man. Wow. Oh boy. You wow. have a suicidal wolfman who can't kill himself because of a time paradox. Gandhi's a vampire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do- Dr. Jekyll exists in it. This definitely sounds very adult swim. You said it was done by the same people that do that did moral oral. Yeah, it's like moral oral but not depressing. Oh boy! Oh man! I don't know. It sounds like, ideal. I want to look this up, but at the same time, I don't know you, if no, I'm no, going to be able to sit through to, it. You have to watch <laughs> For example, one of the first first episode, like the first episode, is about Lyndon B. Johnson having his brain put into the head of John F. Kennedy because that makes because, sense. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. A hundred percent sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No, and I'm not even joking. That yeah. makes sense to me. It does make sense, yeah. yeah. I um, need to be a lot the hotter and then be Vietnam. The second episode <laughs> wasn't aired on TV as it was deemed too blasphemous. And then you said that was about Mother Teresa, right? Yeah. Um, wow. Vampire. I said uh, Ron Howard fucks himself in an episode. <laughs> Okay. Uh, there's an episode where Thomas Jefferson, in the hopes of pleasing his slaves, tries to become a black man. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was laughing really hard at Ron Howard fucking himself, because that just seems on brand for Ron Howard. But then, oh, that's too on brand for Thomas Jefferson, and I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just some really good... There's some like really good episodes. Like one of my favorite episodes is called uh, Bram Stoker's Loudmouths, and it's about Frankenstein trying to kill the vampires because the vampires are loud at the cinema. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, oh, and it like man. turns into like a like a race war kind of thing. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, no, I I love, I love. I love it. I love this show. It's a Frankenstein's uh, a dick. I wish I, I had, had seen it. Dick. Wish I had seen it so I could talk about it at all. This yeah. is all brand yeah, new like, to me. So you guys need to watch this. <laughs> yeah, it kind of went under the it's, radar. It sounds like. Yeah. It, it did. It really did. It was um kind of like how Mora Laurel went under the radar. Frank and Hull really went under the radar. Yeah. This yeah, sounds like got that. Two seasons. Yeah. So. This sounds like that. What was it, Xander? Beakman or whatever it was. Oh, Xander 
Renegade Angel. Yeah. Oh, Xavier Renegade. Xavier Renegade Angel. Yeah, yeah. that's what this sounds like. It's just like how off the wall it is. Xavier Renegade Angel, dear God. Uh, (laughs) Not as much of a cluster, because I looked at some pictures while we were talking about it. It, Obviously, like Moral Oral, a lot of real work went into Frankenhole. Because it is, was it actually claymation or was it like faux claymation? Um, this is like papermation. It's oh, more papermation really? than than the uh, clay stop motion that more Laurel was. They use like a papermation type huh. animation. See, so obviously it's, a lot of work went into it. And so it. you've got Polidor, like you've got the bride who hates Frankenstein and her hair is fire uh-huh. now because it keeps him away. <laughs> you've got... You've got, uh, as a Polidori who's meant to be like Pretorius from... The Bride of Frankenstein, but he's uh-huh. like really gay, Ugh. and it's like beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Um, <clears throat> it's so good. Death's in it. Death and death torments Frankenstein because he can't die, and death <laughs> hates it. Like Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's really it was really good, and it kind of sucked that, and it's a lot of the same. Um, it's a lot of the same cast from Moral Oral. So. Okay. Hmm. I feel like that's why it went under the radar, is just because it was too... It's kind of like Clone High. It's too specific about its source it material. It's a... so niche. It's yeah, so it's niche. such a niche thing that yeah. it's not going to catch on with a large audience the same way that hmm. a lot of other Adult Swim properties are. I don't know why hmm. Moral Oral kept <clears throat> going on. I think it was just... Wow, rude. No, I seriously don't know why More Laurel got more than one season. Because it was so fucking offensive. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was the point of Adult Swim at that point, though, wasn't it? Like, Adult Swim... Yeah. I mean, now it's just to make Rick and Morty and be a Rick and Morty machine. But Adult Swim actually, yeah, but... at the time had this kind of dark comedy. Not really. I mean, what? I, I don't know of anything else like More Laurel that was that... Like knowingly offensive because all their like, you know, cornerstone stuff was all like really lighthearted, like Brack Show, Space Ghost, Harvard Birdman, uh, fucking C Lab. None of that was offensive. It was just <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it was just I don't know. Fucking... Sometimes I feel offended about adult, like uh, uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, like yes, okay. Some of C Lab right. could be as well, to be honest. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I but... refuse to even watch C Lab anymore because of what happened to MC Chris on the set of C Lab, but that's not something to go into. There's an episode of uh, in season two where John Belushi drinks one of like Dr. Jekyll's like Mr. Hyde potions, and it turns. Oh, him we're into talking about Jim Frank and Bel- all again. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It turns <laughs> him into a Jim Belushi, and like everyone hates it. It's such a good episode. Oh my god, that sounds so dumb. <laughs> it's just like, hey, John Belushi, and he's being like super offensive and everything. Oh god, okay. <laughs> so, so let's talk about, and, and we're, we're getting real long here, mm. but <laughs> this is such a long episode. Uh, let's talk about the legacy and the impact. And, and this is, uh, the, talking about the adaptions is a large part of that. I was about and to say, yeah. and just, we, we went over a lot of the legacy already just from. Yeah. Talking about what this original work, which is fairly simple and straightforward for a classic work of literature, all the shit that it begat and all the differences that came out of something that's pretty straightforward. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't. It's not that I don't want to talk anymore about it. It's just like we went over 
So yeah, much we went it. over a lot of it. I would say so. Here's here's what I'm going to say about it. I, I I would say that I think a large part of it is because of all of the adaptions kind of happening like right at the right points in history. It kind of like kept it going like as a property. Um, And that's kind of like why we see so much of it still even today, you know, especially when it comes to Halloween, because everybody knows Frankenstein's monster, especially the universal adaption version of, uh, sorry, Banana Man. Um, (laughs) And and we, you know, that's that's kind of the one that we we keep around and keep in mind all the time. And it's something we so closely associate with horror now that it's kind of hard to avoid. And um I don't know. It's kind of interesting that it all came from the mind of an 18-year-old woman, you know, in, in yeah. 1816. Because that's when she, she wrote it was 1816. It was published first time right. when she was mm-hmm. 20. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure what what the staying power of it is other than that it's just good. Um, but maybe that's all it has to be, you know? Yeah, I don't I think, think it needs much other than that. It just, the fact it's good and the fact it's, the test of time is testament to why it's good. I think the reason it's stuck around <laughs> for so long is because, like we said earlier, it kind of became this preeminent example of a specific type of literature from a specific time. Just as you recognize, oh shoot, I'm trying to think of just other various works like Jules Verne, like 20,000 Leagues yeah. Under the Sea, specifically really good for late 1800s yes. uh, science fiction. Um, yeah, um, let's, like... I mean, Cat of Monte Cristo. Cat of Monte Cristo, yeah, yeah, Uh great adventure novel from the Romantic era. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of stuff from, like, 1980. Yeah, Dickens, uh, 1984, George Orwell. It sticks in... Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby, yeah, Yeah. any, you know, you look at, oh, the the quintessential work of of a certain period in literary time or whatever, and things stand out. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is one of those that just stands out as a top of all the rest for the time period it was written in. And so always those books always stick around far longer and have a lot more staying power than some of the other more derivative works or some of the other works that kind of went under the radar. Whether or not they were just as good, whether or not they weren't as good, kind of isn't as as important as the fact that Mary Shelley kind of got to the table at the right time and wrote the right story and just kind of, and also became popular doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It actually became popular during that time. Like I said, we talked about, you know, we always talk about that there are authors whose works go unappreciated until long after they're dead. Right. She gained fame when she wrote it. It started becoming a play almost immediately. Right. And so definitely people latched onto this story very quickly. And it's just kind of been around ever since. And just people always refer back to it. My final point is that I think the reason it's survived in the form that it has to this day, for whatever reason, is due to the stupid Universal one. And <laughs> that's me projecting that I think the movie's stupid. But the the design of the monster is more of what I'm talking about than the substance of the movie itself. That's why we're still talking about it today. If maybe it wasn't Boris Karloff and maybe it was that stupid De Niro version in the Universal Horror Monster, <laughs> we might still only be talking about the novel preeminently, not necessarily the movie preeminently. Yeah, you know what I mean? So, but now the movie's kind of taken over. Yeah. So I, that, I, I, I agree with you there. I think if... Because that Universal edition came again at the right place at the right time... And if it wasn't for Karloff being so 
iconic tall. looking. Oh, I said tall. Because <laughs> I mean, it wasn't much. It wasn't. I mean, there was a, obviously a lot of prosthetic and special effects makeup that Jack Pierce had to do, but you could still tell it was Karloff underneath all of that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he still looked like that bloke that people knew from the theatre. Because obviously that's where right. Karloff came from. Right. So just like Bela Lugosi. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knew Boris from the theatre, so it's like it's still that guy that people know. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, he is scary. He looks scary. Ah, uh, and then it burned into our collective brains that that's what Banana Man should look like. <laughs> <laughs> I um, hate that I am saying that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> So, uh, what are some of her favorite moments? And I, I'm not going to say even limit, limit her favorite moments to the book, just favorite moments of any work based off of the book. And it could be included, let me say. All right. Um, so, if my first one's probably going to be, like I said, both times, I, I've already referenced this, my favorite parts of the book, while my favorite section of the book is definitely Frankenstein talking about the cottage and how he learns to read and everything like that. Yes. Yes, Banana Man. I apologize. Um, (laughs) My favorite moments and my favorite passages from the book are definitely the moment where he sees Frankenstein destroying the mate that he was going to make for Banana Man. Right. Because... Yeah. And then when he kills Elizabeth. Because in both times, he's just kind of gooning at the window at him and just fucking like... Just making like an eerie face, and it's like lightning behind him, and it's like like I don't know. You basically, when I'm reading it, I just see like you know the fil- the camera filter that's just red to show that like murder is happening or something like that, right. and it's evil abounds, and it's just fucking really, really well written and well, and just puts an image in my brain, and that's probably my biggest, my favorite shit from the book itself. Uh, uh, of anything associated to Frankenstein, favorite moment. Is when Robert De Niro and uh, what was what was the Frankenstein's? Oh, Kenneth uh, Branagh. Yeah, when Kenneth Branagh mm. and Robert De Niro are 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 slippery oh, mud yeah. fighting after he comes out of the Matrix pod. <laughs> oh man! In the nineteen ninety one, because it's just cut so weird, and they're yeah, and, it is cut really strangely. And Robert De Niro is just straight up buck ass naked, and they're just slipping and falling, and you're like, what fucking Robert bar did this happen? Robert De Niro is butt ass naked with a whole bunch of like prosthetics. On, but he still has the danglies. And Kenneth Branagh has no shirt on. And airbrushed abs. Yes, and airbrushed abs. Oh. Airbrushed abs. It's the best. It's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, so my favorite moment from the book is definitely also where Banana Man is relating his story. Yeah. Uh, and and just the things that he's going through and explaining why he is the way he is now, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. He's like, you know, it's 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 really... Because you finally see it from the other side. And it's such a great turn in the book. And she put it directly in the middle of the mm-hmm. book. Yeah. It was so, mm-hmm. so expertly put together where it was just like, okay, this makes complete sense for this to happen now. Let's flip it around. Let's figure out what's going on. And then from there on, it's just like shit is going down from like when, <laughs> from, for, yeah, it yeah. just completely changes the whole, kind of the whole feel of the book is when True. you finally yeah, understand like what he went through. And then what happens afterwards is just like almost justified in a way. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know. 
It's interesting. My favorite moment of any, like, not book-related, like, just uh, anything that's an adaption. Um, you know, that's a tough one, because I like the 1931 one a lot in the sense of, like, it's a classic. And I would say just the whole scene where the monster is actually being, uh, you know, lifted up into the mm-hmm. the lightning and, and is about to basically be brought to life. I think that's a really great and iconic scene. And there's a reason why it's an iconic scene. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really well put together. I like yep. that a lot. Um, so, Chrissy, what, what, what's your favorite? Book-wise, again, the, the same as you guys, the way that the monster relays his story and that we... Get a feel for how the monster <clears throat> dying over here. Just get a feel for how the monster feels, and you in kind of most horror media, even now, we don't get that. Like that's a very it's a rare moment. And then for non-related media, oh, it's Frankenhold. Just the entirety of Frankenhold. It's so dumb. <laughs> It's so stupid. It's just this Greek-American guy's idea of what if Frankenstein made to doing this thing into a business? Also, he's God. immortal, I guess. <laughs> it does sound like a clusterfuck. I really want to watch it. I just have to find some place to yeah, I feel like watch it's on it 100% of like, legally. It's on loads of like, streaming sites. I'm pretty sure it's on like Kiss Cartoon and stuff like that. Oh, which yeah. is totally I said 100% legally. Totally, don't watch it on stuff like that. I'm pretty sure it's still on Adult Swim anyway. It's probably still available on Adult Swim to watch. Yeah, you can watch a lot of this stuff online for free. True, yeah. true. So, final thoughts? God. How do we have any final thoughts after all the thoughts that we've, already, yeah. that we've already had? We're, yeah. We're over three hours. Yeah. We thought out. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Um, I blew my load. I can't <laughs> say that every... Everything related to Frankenstein is great. Uh, I do really like the book, and it's a very, it, it's it's a it's a simple read, which doesn't make it bad or doesn't make it like light reading. It gives you a lot to think about, is what I, is what I'll say. Yeah. Which I think um, a lot of times you don't get to say a lot about a horror book, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very, like I said earlier on, I think that I'm I'm very reluctant to call it horror. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't feel like that. It's definitely more character driven. It's definitely more emotional than than horror is. And um, I don't know. Uh, if you want a good read and you want to know, understand a lot of the, the 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 blueprints of where a lot of certain types of horror come from, read Frankenstein. It's certainly not going to give you blueprints of horror today. It's not going to give you blueprints of horror in. You know, even in late 1800s or early 1900s, you know, it evolves so much. But this is this is definitely an origin for part of the genre. Is, yeah. I think is how I would boil it. Yes. Down. I would say, so Here, here's kind of my summation of the whole thing. First of all, and then this first person, not even going to be related to actually what we're talking about, but just it's going to be related to if you're going to do an episode this long about something, make sure you actually like it. Um, and, I, and I'm glad that we all really enjoy Frankenstein as a property because this is this would have been a really hard episode to do otherwise. Yeah, um, it's a good book. Like I said, yeah. there's nothing bad about it. it. It might not be to everyone's tastes, but it's hard not to like it. 
you know. So I would say if you're really wanting to experience Frankenstein in the way that I feel like you'll understand it as a property the best way, I would say read the book, watch Universal 1, and uh, try and at least uh, try watch Bride of Frankenstein 2 because that, oh, yeah. that one's really great. And, and it does build on a little bit of the uh, what the, the 1931 one introduced uh and then watch young frankenstein that would be would be my suggestion if you're going to consume it in a way and really understand the property in a good way read the book watch 1931 version uh watch brighter frankenstein watch young frankenstein that's how i would say like because you kind of get a good amalgamation of everything that the property has (laughs) to enjoy about it let me let me put it that way and then maybe watch the out in the chipmunks one (laughs) i like that one (laughs) fuck you (laughs) I mean, oh man, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way I'd say it. I'd also maybe say watch like a Hammer one just to see Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing being really ridiculous. But yeah, but yeah, no. Watch The Bride, watch Frankenstein, read the book, sort your life out while while you're reading the book. You know, the book <laughs> will help you do that. the The book will put perspective for you. Are you a murdering banana man? No? Then you can do that shit that you need to do. <laughs> I, didn't, okay. I didn't think it was a self-help book, but that's it is. That's good. It's that's, that's a good way of looking bases. at it. Oh, it's universal. Uh, oh, haha. Universal. Anyway. <laughs> I think we're finally done. I think, I think this is all we're going to have for this week and thank you all for if you made it to this point god bless you Uh, (laughs) thank you for making it this far uh and thank you for listening and thank you we just love doing this shit honestly we just we just really enjoy uh making a lot we're we're glad that we're now making more concise content i guess stuff that has like more of a a structure or something that has more like a string i'll say that don't expect every now i can do things again I'd say definitely don't expect uh, 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 like all the episodes going forward to be this long. Yeah. Um, oh no, there, this it's, is r- special. It, it's it's rare that we have to sit and we do actually have to analyze or analyze, <laughs> analyze, <laughs> analyze. Uh, what three centuries worth of popular culture? Two. Yeah, it's two. It's two centuries. Yeah. Oh yeah, nineteenth, twenty. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're uh, part, and then part of the twenty-first. So two, two and a quarter. Uh, no, because no, because it was well, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about actually analyzing, but the book was written in. I mean, it was released in eighteen eighteen, so that would be two hundred and one years from now. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So two centuries worth of popular culture. That it's hard to do that justice in like an hour and thirty minutes. So. Yeah. Don't expect them all to be like this, but we will look forward. To finding things that are worth doing this for, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Also, look forward to, uh, forward to us never talking about Frankenstein ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was just, like, so much information to try and digest, so... We didn't even talk about A Year Without a Summer. Want to throw that in at the very end? <laughs> a Year Without a Summer? Yeah, uh, apparently in 1816... Um, there was, oh, yeah, the there was whole a big thing volcano the, and there was a volcanic yeah, nah, winter and a bunch of crops that. died. We'll talk about that Famine some happened. other. We'll, we'll fit that in some other episode. <laughs> Maybe when we're talking about the vampire by Polidori. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, basically, thank you all for listening. 
Later, guys. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm <laughs> we love to you. Eat pizza and pet my cat and drink some cold medicine. Hell yeah. And uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Frankenberry. Oh, shit. Bye. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>